Hello, and welcome to the Fresh Air Sci-Fi Show. This is a little bit of an older recording, so please be forgiving for all its quirks. I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And tonight I'd like to introduce to you someone that probably doesn't need an introduction, Mr. Ozymandias Ramses II. How are you doing, Ozzy? <laughs> very well. Thanks for having me on. That's a very generous introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's well-deserved. <laughs> Your viewers and listeners are saying, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, we had quite a few that were excited to see you on. Okay. All right. Well, for those who don't know me, can I say uh, a bit okay, of, about myself just by way of introductions? Okay. So my name is Ozymandias Ramses II. Everyone just calls me Ozzy. Uh, I live in Canada. I'm 55 years old. My background is in contemporary analytic philosophy. And I joined the great debate uh, online about the question of the of God's existence uh, around 2014 or so uh, with the creation of a YouTube channel called Ozymandias Ramses II. And I was a co-panelist on a show that was quite popular called The Magic Sandwich Show and a number of other online streaming uh, venues, hangouts and things like that. Um, so I sort of injected myself into that conversation um, owing to sort of my background in philosophy that sort of brought me in connection with uh, questions about the philosophy of religion. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I've seen uh, a number of your, your videos and, and stuff like that, and they're all really good, really interesting. And you managed to break a lot of uh, cons uh, complicated concepts down into stuff that I can understand. So good on you. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's, that's nice of you to say. <laughs> so tonight we're here to have a conversation about new atheism and new atheists, both from the conception of the term, what it was supposed to be, and how it's sort of become a bit of a derogatory insult um, used in a dismissive way and does sort of actually describe now a particular group of atheists with a certain set of negative behaviours. Um, but before we continue, um, I figure we should, so we don't talk past each other, um, when you say you're an atheist, what definition of atheist do you use? Um, I use the traditional or classical uh, definition of atheism, the one that is not just used primarily in philosophy um, and philosophical discourse uh, and theological discourse, uh, but also used most commonly by the average person in the street, in the vernacular, and that is that it's the view that there isn't a God. It's not a lack of belief or anything like that. That is a, a definition that is widely promulgated within uh, online uh, atheist movement and activists, but um, what I mean is I think that there aren't any gods. It's my view that there are no gods. Yeah, excellent. I think all three of us are on the same page with that one then. Uh, we obviously do understand that there are a, a number of different definitions um, and people are free to use whichever one they like, but at least we're all on the same page with that one and we won't be talking past each other. So the first question of tonight, you know, what is or what was new atheism supposed to be? Um, well, in my view, there's no significant difference between the old atheism and the new atheism. The new atheism isn't a new way to think about uh, atheism. It's not a new kind of atheism. It is simply a difference in discursive emphasis. So, uh, I mean, there have been sort of out and proud atheists for a long time. Uh, and Bertrand Russell was a, a famous um, uh, atheist or agnostic by some definitions. Um, and uh, in an American context, uh, you have uh, organizations like uh, American Atheists, which were founded by people like uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare. I think she was the founder. Anyway, she was a, one of the early 
um, spokespeople for the, the movement, and she was sort of very loud and brash and outspoken. Um, but she was sort of unusual in being that outspoken. And most atheist um, activists and people in the uh, uh, online movement later on were not quite so um, so loud and, and proud of, about it. They, they talked about um, their atheism without embarrassment. Um, but at the same time, there was an, an understanding that one still had to be sort of uh, respectful of religion, um, uh, of religion itself, not the religious. Everyone, I think, agrees you should be respectful of, of other people, um, whether they're religious or not. Uh, but do you have to respect religion? And that changed uh, with uh, a, a book in 2006, um, this book here, The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Uh, and that this is the book that is... Um, credited with sort of launching the new atheism. And uh, one of the things that's emphasized in that book, In the End of Faith, is that the entire discourse of faith is, um, is something that has been sheltered, that we have, we have culturally put a hedge around um, the discourse of faith, talk of faith, talk of religion, talk of the other world, talk of God. And we have sort of sanctified, no pun intended, um, this kind of talk, um, such that you should not question people about their faith um, too strongly. It, it, it's considered sort of impertinent to challenge a politician on, in, on his or her faith. Um, you should not uh, advertise the fact that you are without a faith if you are without a faith. Right? Um, with the publication of The End of Faith, Sam Harris and then a number of other books that came online afterwards, um, uh, they were recommending something very different. Uh, uh, they were recommending that people practice um, something called conversational intolerance. Not that you be intolerant of people, but that you um, let people know that you don't buy their religious nonsense as you see it as a non-believer, right? I mean, I mean, if you're a non-believer, if you're someone who just doesn't believe in any religions um, or doesn't believe that any gods exist at all, um, then people's religious talk is going to seem to you to be kind of like talk about astrology it's going to sound like talk about witchcraft. It's going to seem quaint, metaphysically extravagant, um, and, and or irrational or all of the above. And so the recommendation that Sam Harris makes is that we need to break down this hedge that has been built around the discourse of faith so that, so that people who talk about faith openly are made to confront the incredulity that some of us feel. So the idea is you practice conversational intolerance not by unleashing on someone because they're wearing a cross around their neck in an elevator um, and you don't have to spoil Thanksgiving dinner or anything like that. But what it means is that when the subject of religion comes up, whoever brings it up, you just unabashedly talk about it like you would anybody, any other subject, whether it was science or politics or anything else. You just don't hold back and say, oh, I mustn't. Um, I mustn't uh, tread on someone's uh, religious sensibilities. The idea is, screw their sensibilities. Uh, <laughs> it's a subject like anything else, and we're going to practice conversational intelligence, and we're going to ma make them feel this con conversational pressure by confronting them with our own incredulity. And so this book was followed by a host of other books. Um, so there was The God Delusion the following year, 2006, by Richard Dawkins. Everyone's heard of that one. Uh, breaking the Spell the same year, I think later that same year, by Daniel Dennett. Uh, there was another one called God, the Hypothesis that Failed in 2007 by Victor Stenger, who's a physicist. Um, and then uh, uh, lastly, and arguably most famously, or most notoriously anyway, 
uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything by Christopher Hitchens. Uh, all of these books had this same thing in common. Um, they were sort of recommending either explicitly or implicitly that atheists come out, um, sort of on the analogy of gay people coming out, of making their existence known. Um, and they don't have to be obnoxious about it, but they should not just give religion a pass. That's, that's the difference between the new atheism and the old atheism. The, the new atheism is simply the idea that religion is no longer going to get a pass. It, there's going to be conversational pressure that's going to be experienced. We're going to confront people with our incredulity about their faith claims. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense, really, doesn't it? I mean, just, uh, I suppose the word confront is obviously a bit confrontational and perhaps why those conversations do go that way instead of having that conversation where, well, why do you believe that? What made you, what convinced you that was true? And having a, a discussion about it, 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 it seems to have got a little bit more heated than that these days. Yeah, well, I think what has happened is um, the new atheism was very successful in that regard because, I mean, these books came out, um, as I said, they all came out between about 2005 and 2010. Um, and there were, there were other books. I mean, those were just like, you know, the big five, um, uh, four, of them, four of which were written by the, uh, you know, the notorious four uh, horsemen of the atheist apocalypse or whatever they were called. Um, and uh, so it became a kind of thing, right? But all those books came out together in very, very short order. So it became a kind of uh, a, a, a sensation. It became a kind of intellectual fad. This coincides uh, pretty uh, closely with um, the, the spread of more and more atheist um, dedicated channels on YouTube, more blogs about atheism and secular, advancing secularism, um, confronting creationism and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, of course, you know, this was all came on the heels of, of uh, 9-11. Um, and there was a lot of concern uh, you know, globally about uh, Islamic fundamentalism and Islamism um, and the kind of threat that that, that posed uh, to the whole world. Um, and so uh, there was, a, I think, um, a, a, a receptiveness to this, this message. Uh, it's not a coincidence that the new atheism gets launched on the, on the heels of 9-11. In fact, if you, you look at the, um, the subtitle of The End of Faith, it's uh, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. So, I mean, <laughs> clearly religious terrorism was uppermost in people's minds. This book became a bestseller. And I think all of those books actually were, uh, were bestsellers that I, that I listed. Um, so I think what happened was this, the, the success of these, these books, um, uh, really emboldened an, an awful lot of people who had long been non-believers or atheists or agnostics or non-theists of some variety, um, to, to start practicing this conversational pressure and confronting people about their beliefs. And I think it was enormously successful. It's so successful that we, we've, for, we've kind of forgotten that it, that it used to be harder to talk about this subject, mm. to be openly atheistic. Um, it's much easier to do that in an American context than it used to be. Um, not that I think the work is all done, but I mean, it's much easier than it used to be. Uh, and this has emboldened some people to just be jerks <laughs> and <laughs> just harangue religious people and be obnoxious and do the very things that people like Sam Harris always said you shouldn't do, like 
unleash on someone in an elevator <laughs> because they're wearing a cross or, um, or a yarmulke or something like that um, uh, and, and spoiling Thanksgiving and Easter and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it has, it has become um, sort of identified now uh, more than a decade later with a sense of obnoxiousness, of an, of an obnoxious uh, non-believer. Uh, I think that reputation is somewhat well-earned that, that I think that's a real fact. Yeah, I mean, Sweet has just said, you know, the the the, the definition we've just described of new atheism uh, is very different to to what she sees on Twitter, although it seems just as valid. Um, but these days, new atheism seems to be equated with lacktheism, um, which sort of leads us on to the the next sort of section, which is, you know, how new atheism is used today and the number of behaviors uh, and things that you can see quite commonly used by those that are now new atheists. Sure. Actually, uh, before we uh, launch into a discussion of that, um, would you be able to sort of um, display those uh, those memes that I that I found? I can indeed. Yeah. So... And I'll explain why. So in preparation for this, I thought, you know, there's so many people who are sort of entering this uh, this a particular conversation online about the new atheism who were not around um, um, or were not alive to the, uh, the situation when these books were published and the new atheism got up and rolling, that their entire perception of the new atheism is informed by what they see right now. And they have no sense of how it began. Uh, so uh, I went and uh, just did a a Google image image search on old atheism versus new atheism. And I just did a Google image search and I found uh, a few images. And if you could just display those, I don't know um, if they're being displayed. Yeah, I got yeah. the first one up now. So the first one we've got up is your uh, uh, old atheist going blind idiot. Oh, sorry, blind theist going blind idiot, rat think pervert, commie, blasphemer, and hitting the atheist over the head. And the new atheist being someone who's going to break the cross and the theist complaining that they're not having any respect. Right, right. So in, in, in this illustration, um, it's, it's two images juxtaposed side, uh, side by side or one above the other. And so in, in one, you have this, this crotchety old religious person literally, literally bashing an atheist uh, <laughs> over the head. And the atheist says nothing. That's the old atheism. You, you just kind of take your lumps. Um, and then in the, in the next image, the atheist has grabbed the, the cross out of the hand of, of the, uh, the religious person. He's breaking it over his knee, and the theist says, hey, let's have a little respect here. Right? So that is the kind of, of, uh, of stereotype sort of uh, illustrated gloriously <laughs> uh, in uh, hyperbolic form in a meme here. Um, uh, the next one, if you could show the next one. Yeah. Uh, so... Oh, technical difficulties. Okay. <laughs> now, let we me just my the next one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this next one is a meme I, I created, actually. Um, so, again, it's two images. Um, for those who are listening and can't watch, uh, it's um, two images juxtaposed side by side. On the left is a silhouette of two female figures um, who are obviously in conversation. And one young woman is thinking to herself silently, God, seriously? So clearly, she's on the receiving end of some God talk from somebody. And then the the other um, image uh, is, is supposed to represent the new atheism. And instead of just silently keeping God seriously, she vocalizes out loud, 
God seriously. And that, I think, sums up the, the difference. Um, and there's lots of images like this um, if you would look for them. I don't know that we yeah. need to labor the point by showing others, but that, that is sort of the essence of, of the new atheism. It was a, is a, a shift in discursive emphasis. What are we going to talk about? Are we just going to sort of go on about creationism and secularism? Or are we actually going to criticize what we think are the social and political liabilities of religion and religiosity? Are we, are we just going to go on instead, as we have in the past, pretending that it's perfectly okay for people to be, believe things that we think are fantastical, um, exactly as if they believed in witches and, and astrology, and think about it? Right? Um, should they not be ridiculed if we think their views are ridiculous? Uh, so that I think is the is the difference between the old and the new atheism. It's a, it's yeah. a shift in discursive emphasis. So um, it, essentially, as as you've said, you know, it's about speaking up. Um, but unfortunately, what it has come to be is not necessarily just speaking up and questioning things and being open about it. It's become a lot more negative, derogatory, combative. Um, it's become people... yelling at instead of talking to. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's not a lot of listening and understanding. Why do you believe that? You know, it's not having a conversation. It's just, you're wrong. Um, and insults. Yeah. And yeah. Sorts. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously the kind of behavior that I don't like to see. Um, uh, I think it's unavoidable, though. Um, so, I mean, for, from the standpoint of a non-believer, um, having people just say, you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, you're a terrible person for, you know, believing su such and such. I mean, that's part for the course if you're an atheist in certain societies. You're used to getting that kind of treatment if you're an atheist from the religious. Um, and so I think in the minds of many, uh, many atheists today um, who are sort of growing up um, or have sort of tumbled into their atheism later in life um, in, re in recent years, um, uh, on the heels of the success of the new atheism, they, they feel that they um, have every right to be as obnoxious as some of the religious people that they see around them, you know, bashing them for being non-religious. Um, so I think uh, for some people, it's, uh, it's seen as just, you know, returning, you know, an eye for an eye. Now, I obviously think this is a mistake. I think that this is, it is a disservice to oneself. It is a disservice to one side of an argument, and it's a, dis a disservice to civilization generally to engage in uh, this kind of instability. I mean, there's just no reason to do it. Um, I think that one has to be allowed, however, to do this. I think that atheists should enjoy the right to be as obnoxious as they want. Um, they shouldn't be able to hurt people, but they should be able to be to ridicule and to be cruel and verbally mean. And I mean, I think it makes you a jerk if you are, but I think you should be allowed to do this. Um, I take a pretty strong line on freedom of thought and expression and freedom of speech. Um, but it's, it is certainly something that I don't like to see <clears throat> because I think it's actually counterproductive. Mm -hmm. One of the things about the, about the old atheism and the new atheism that they had in common was, uh, this idea that, um, to become an atheist, to sort of tumble out of your faith or to, if you're you know, lucky enough to have never been reared in a uh, religious tradition and to have escaped, uh, that, that discourse of faith yourself, um, one of the benefits of that is that you're not beholden to a certain set of philosophical propositions or metaphysical beliefs. You're, you're free to explore those, but you're not required. You're not going to be more guilted into it. You're not going to be terrified by the threat 
hellfire or anything like that into believing those things. <clears throat> and that this is going to be liberating uh, and that you're going to be able to exercise your own autonomous reason and you're going to be able to exercise critical thinking a little bit better uh, because your your conscience is not going to feel shackled or be uh, beholden uh, to a particular religious faith. Um, and if you think that I'm sort of being uncharitable in describing this, just imagine someone who practices a faith other than your own who is terrified of doubting their own faith, their own religious precepts, uh, and, and you'll see the problem immediately. Um, so uh, I, I think that it, one of the things that the old and the new atheism had in common was this idea that, that it would be liberating to be freed of um, religion and religiosity and religious thinking, that the discourse of faith, is, its time has come and it's gone, and what will replace it will be more critical thinking, uh, more free thinking, uh, a greater respect for rationality and scientific values, um, uh, and basically a greater commitment to reason uh, by moving away from ancient superstitions. Um, and I think, however, when, when people just bash the religious or just bash religions because they disagree with them and don't have good arguments and don't contend with the arguments that theists bring to the table, I think they undermine that part of of the objective of the new atheism and the old atheism, which is to try to replace archaic superstitious thinking with the very best things that contemporary philosophy and science um, have to bring, which is science, reason, critical thinking, a commitment to scientific values, um, and disinterested pursuit of the truth. Uh, you're not going to get that way, you know, get move in that direction if your idea of being an atheist is just condemning the religions that are around you and religious people and religiosity uh, and just critiquing them by condemning them as they're just bad and not having good arguments, good, good counter arguments for the arguments that are presented against you. Yeah, I mean, we actually did um, uh, an episode uh, a few weeks back, which was do ridiculous beliefs deserve ridicule. Um, and both Dave and I just think that ridiculing someone is, is not really going to be helpful. Uh, especially if you're doing it online, you might, if you're trying to change someone's mind and make them think critically, the best thing you can do is have a conversation with them in a respectful manner and try and discuss things in a, in a cordial way rather than ridiculing someone. Because if you ridicule someone, you're going to make them sink into themselves and get defensive. They'll double down and they won't listen to anything that you've got to say. Uh, so how do you feel about the the statement, ridiculous beliefs deserve ridicule? Okay, well, I'm of two minds on it. Um, uh, I mean, strictly speaking, if something is ridiculous, it, it it is worthy of ridicule. But that doesn't mean that from the standpoint of persuasiveness and advancing the cause of disabusing the world of these ridiculous ideas, that ridicule is the best formula. Mm -hmm. Now, ridicule works for some people. So it's kind of a, a weird thing. It, it, it's... Some people are moved by ridicule, you know, that when they find out that their views are seen as ridiculous, it makes them think. Most people don't do that, though. Most people, they just, you know, how dare you? How dare you laugh at me? Right. And they just dig in their heels. And so I think it is most of the time counterproductive, but it isn't always counterproductive. There are some small proportion of people out there who will be given um, occasion to reconsider because they have never heard their ideas regarded as ridiculous. They have been sheltered. They have perhaps grown up in a community where they didn't know any atheists or any non-believers. They've, they've never known any real um, um, critique of, of their religious 
doctrines that way. And so that can be eye-opening for some small number, but I think it is very counterproductive. Um, so I, it's not a practice that I use. Now, if I, you know, if I were wittier, I mean, if I had the wit of like, you know, Christopher Hitchens, maybe I would engage in more, <laughs> in more ridicule. But honestly, I, I play to my strengths. And <laughs> I just don't think that I have the, 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 the wit of someone like Christopher Hitchens who can come up with very, very pithy um, ways of, of deflating uh, certain doctrines or certain pretensions of, of the religious. Uh, but I mean, it does work in some instances, but I think that the percentage would be very, very small. So, I mean, it, this, I think this is one of those things where, look, by definition, if an idea is ridiculous, it is worthy of ridicule. But it doesn't mean that that's the, the right way to proceed from the standpoint of trying to persuade that individual or even onlookers. Because I know that when uh, views that I hold to be true, let's say political views or my own views uh, about the non-existence of God, when I hear them ridiculed by people, and I don't think that the, the ridicule is warranted because I don't think my views are ridiculous and I don't think that they've done a good job um, of, uh, of divesting me of my views, for instance, then that ridicule isn't going to work. Um, so I mean, it, this, this argument cuts both ways. It doesn't matter who's um, ridiculing whom. I, on, on balance, I think it is a bad strategy. And, you know, you can get together in your church basements uh, we can get together at our secular clubs and stuff like that, and we can all ridicule each other, you know, in-house. I think that's all fine. That's all good fun. You know, we can sort of, you know, we can do that kind of thing, right? You can get together with your family and friends and laugh at, you know, neighbors next door that have some wacky new age beliefs or something like that. You know, we, we, all of us in this room can probably get together and do that, you know, um, <laughs> you know, over a beer or something like that. Yeah. But in, for public discourse, when you're out there, when you're putting yourself out on Twitter or Facebook or in YouTube videos or on, in your blogs or articles or TV shows or whatever, whatever it is, when you're out there engaged in public discourse, I think that manners matter. Mm. And one of the things about manners, I mean, I, this is going to make me sound like a terrible old fogey here, but I mean, <laughs> one of the th one of the, the things about manners is that manners are, are they are something that are transmitted culturally from generation. Through generation, because they have a mitigating effect on hostility. You know, getting people to shake hands, saying please and thank you, um, listening um, to people, uh, being polite. You know, um, and not interrupting. You know, you know all of the things that we think of as civil discourse. Um, uh, not ridiculing people, uh, not creating straw uh, men out of their arguments and so forth. All of these things are just a matter of. Of civility, they're good manners. And now, good manners, when it comes to discourse, there's a name for that. Being sort of well mannered in in discourse has a name. In philosophy, it's known as the principle of intellectual charity. And in the principle of intellectual charity, you try to steel man your opponent. You don't try to build a straw man and defeat that. You try to build the steel man uh, of your opponent's views, and you credit your opponent, your interlocutor. Um, with as much intelligence as you have yourself. You don't assume that they're an idiot uh, just because they believe something that you take to be idiotic. You have to proceed as if you don't, you don't hold that opinion, even if you do, because it's uncivil to do that. It's, it's intellectually uncharitable, um, and it, it is not conducive to, to good uh, discourse. And anyone who fancies him or herself a critical thinker and a free thinker should aim to be as civil as possible in discourse. You can practice conversational pressure um, and conversational intelligence, 
and intolerance of the sort that I've been talking about, uh, and practice the, the principle of intellectual uh, charity. Now, you don't have to resort to ridicule and insult and ad hominems and, and worse. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the, the main time we concluded that that ridicule would probably work is if you've already got a good rapport with someone and you you respect them. So if I was to suddenly come up with a, a belief that I had and tell Dave, and Dave was to turn around and go, you're a fucking idiot if you believe that, then I would probably be more receptive than some random on the internet saying that sort of thing. So yeah, there are times when, as you say, ridicule can work, but it's one of those few and far between cases. So anyone out there who is engaging on conversations uh, online with theists, think about what you're doing, try and build a rapport and try and discuss things and be a bit more charitable. I think as well, if you want to change someone's mind, there has to be like a at least a basic modicum of respect or they're just not going to listen to you anyway. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that, that just goes to sort of the idea of uh, having some kind of emotional intelligence, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Ask yourself, how often did you change your mind about some important belief, something consequential, right? Um, when the person was just hitting you with insults or ridiculing your position or mischaracterizing your position or not hearing you out. Or, like, I mean, I mean, if you even know any human beings, you know that this is not a way to <laughs> this is not a way to change anybody's mind about these things. Um, I mean, it's hard to change someone's mind on something inconsequential, you know, like. I mean, a person would be resistant to, to revising their beliefs about the price of tomatoes in their own grocery store <laughs> yeah. if they were confronted that way. They would, they, would, they would not want you to be right just because you're being such a jerk about it, right? They would try to find a way <laughs> to construe anything you say as wrong, right? Um, and, but if it's something consequential and if it's, if it's something like religion where you organize your life around it, I mean, that's, what, that, that's, that's what's interesting about religion is it's kind of like, it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy of life. It's a religious philosophy. Um, that's what religions are. They're, they're a kind of philosophy. And it's like having a political philosophy um, and political allegiances and commitments. You organize your life around them, including your moral life. So they're extremely consequential. And so they're extremely resistant to revision, as they should be. You shouldn't just be changing your fundamental uh, beliefs and values <clears throat> just because someone you know throws up a challenge and you don't know how to address it on the spot, right? You should, in fact, your belief system, your belief set should be made of sturdier stuff that it can can and will withstand that. And if it, if those beliefs mean anything to you, you will try to defend them. You shouldn't defend them come what may. At some point, you have to engage in belief revision. But belief revision isn't something that should happen automatically as soon as you encounter an objection. And even a devastatingly accurate, um, sound and valid objection is not going to be uh, born well by someone who's on the receiving end of a pile of ridicule. Right? Mm. I mean, you're, I mean, you really are including a hand grenade um, uh, along with the, you know, the, the, this offer of friendship. But I mean, it, the way I, I see it, when you're trying to disabuse a person of an important consequential belief, like their religious belief or their political beliefs, that is an act of friendship. It, is, it doesn't have to be an act of hostility. When I have tried to talk to the friends about religion, and I try to disabuse them, and they try to disabuse me of my atheism, right? I don't assume that they're being hostile, right? I assume that it's motivated by some concern uh, for my welfare, even if they're a stranger, but especially if it's a friend or, or family member or something like that. But even if it's a total stranger, right? You have to understand that very often people just, they want other people to believe what they think is true because they think that the truth 
is going to be useful and good for you, that you will be better for knowing the truth. It isn't just that they're trying to pry and crowbar you into thinking the way they can so they can bring about, you know, you know, whatever political ends they have in mind or anything like that. Not everyone is so, so Machiavellian and, and mercenary in their thinking. Most people, when they try to talk people out of what they, they see as bullshit, they're doing it because they think it's going to be good for that person, mm-hmm. not just for themselves. And so when people try to talk me into their religions, I don't take umbrage at it. I don't get offended. Um, and, uh, and similarly, I hope that people will not be offended when I try to disabuse them of what I, I regard as religious bullshit that they believe in or new age bullshit or some, uh, some quack twaddly new age philosophy or something like that. Right? Uh, um, I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking derisively uh, about these things now uh, for a fact, but when I'm talking to the person, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't proceed with that. You know, I'm, I'm not even going to lead with that uh, as a joke because I know that it's going to be counterproductive. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you don't already have a, a half decent rapport with them first. You know, you could probably, if it's someone you know quite well, they'd probably be more respect, uh, receptive to a little bit of uh, tomfoolery and banter in the conversation. But uh, as you say, uh, in general, you want to be as respectful as possible and make sure they're as receptive as possible. I have a good friend, um, and he is, we are about as unlike as you could imagine. So he's politically very conservative. I'm fairly far left. Um, And um, he's an evangelical Christian. Uh, I'm an atheist who's critical of things like creationism that he believes in and the the particular uh, view of Christianity that he holds. It's particularly um, uh, offensive to my own moral sensibilities. and sense of human dignity. Um, and so we've had conversations about these things and we, we joke all the time. We, you know, we, I mean, he's, he's really good at, he tells a lot of jokes. Randy, if you're listening, hello, I'm talking about you. Uh, <laughs> 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 he, he will have recognized himself in this description already, but, uh, I mean, he, he, he hits me with jokes all the time. Um, and I, it's, it's not a problem, but that's because we have that rapport. So, I mean, he can, he can be dismissive and rude and, and, and sort of, you know, Try to the equivalent of a, of, a, of a verbal meme to misrepresent and ridicule my position. That's okay uh, because we're friends, and I know that it's not it's not meant. Uh, it's not even a serious attempt to, to change my mind or disabuse me of, of what I think. It's just we're just having a laugh at each other's expense, which is what you can do with a friend. But yeah, uh, out in public, it's not a, it's not a great way to proceed. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, we've already addressed a couple of the the key behaviors that you might see from uh, the derogatory use of new atheist. Um, so that is the, the sort of the ridicule and being overly confrontational and uh, just basically attacking. Uh, you also mentioned memes. That's another key one that we actually see um, from from these people is, is that they're just throwing memes in. I think there was one person that Dave and I ended up having to mute recently because on every conversation that we were having uh, with anyone, and it wasn't even necessarily a religious conversation, he just decided to come in and just pile on loads of memes about, you've got to prove your God, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, even after we explained we were atheists, he still goes, well, you still got to prove God. It's like, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I suppose that's another thing, like not taking the time to understand first so I, I always think that we're in any conversation you've got to take a bit of time to understand the other person's position even if you think you already know it even if you go oh well they're a creationist they think xyz still have that conversation because you might learn something 
there might be something that they haven't thought of or you haven't thought of. Maybe you can learn from each other. Maybe you can actually change your mind if you take that time to actually understand what their position is. Um, so I think I think that 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 meme and uh, not taking the time to understand is is very common. Um, I've also seen a lot of binary thought. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, so have you ever tried to explain uh, epistemic justification or the burden of proof on a belief? <laughs> to uh an atheist <laughs> yeah uh, you, you you could say that i've made a career out of it uh, <laughs> uh, although although i'm a total failure and i have never made a penny at it because i never monetized my channel so but no uh, a lot of the discussions that i've had online over the years um was sort of trying to uh convince my my fellow atheists that they need to take seriously this notion of the burden of proof and it's just false to fact to say that the theists have the, the burden of proof and atheists don't have any burden of proof at all. This is this is to misunderstand what burden of proof is. This is this is what's happening there is they're they're using the expression the burden of proof because this is how they hear the expression burden of proof used um, in their in, in, in our culture because it's most often used in connection with courts. So there's something called a burden, a burden of proof. And but people always talk about the burden of proof. They imagine that in any discussion between two people, let's say, um, there is one party that has a burden, and only that person, and, and that's it. Um, and this is just mistaken. Um, the reason they think that there's the burden of proof is that because in, in our judicial system, in our criminal court system, we have set things up such that uh, artificially that only one party, one of, and we have an adversarial system, but in our adversarial system, we have stipulated that there will only ever be one party that has a burden. And the other doesn't have to have a burden of proof at all. They're presumed innocent. It's the prosecution that has the burden of proof. That is the that is a situation where there is the burden of proof, and it's just one sided. But that's not how this works in in, in discourse, in logic, in philosophy. It's just not how how this works. It's not how it works in academia. Um, when two people disagree on something, um, they uh, they each have a presumably they have some kind of position. If there's four people in a conversation and they each have a different position, they each have their own burden of proof. A burden of proof is just the burden to justify, to give reasons for why your position is rational. It's simply the rational basis for your position, whatever your position is. So if you think, as I do, that thoughts don't exist, I, I need reasons for thinking that. If I thought thoughts probably don't exist, I need reasons for that. If I was on the fence and thought, well, maybe a God exists, maybe not, I'm not sure, I'd need reasons for why I'm so indecisive and inclusive on that. And if I think, well, probably a God exists, then I need reasons for that. And if I think, you know, damn it, I know God exists, um, then I would, I would need um, reasons and evidence for that. So you, you have a burden of justification or a burden of proof, not by virtue of who you're arguing with, but by virtue of the position that you hold. You don't need anybody in the room to incur a burden of justification. If you want to claim that your, per, your position is rational, there has to be a rationale. There has to be a reason. There's no rationality without a rationale. And there's no reasonableness without a reason. If you want to say that thinking that there's no God um, is uh, a reasonable position, you need to discharge your, your burden of justification. And I mean, most atheists are capable of doing it. It's just that they've been told that they don't have to do such a thing. They've been told that, no, only the other side does. And I think that this tendency, this kind of reflex to insist that the theists defend their um, uh, their their burden of their of their position is because a lot of theists would 
try to avoid it. They would say, look, you atheists are in the minority, so you have the burden. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It has nothing to do with minorities and majorities. That's, that's BS too. That's a confusion about burden of justification. It's also uh, fatuous. Um, it has nothing to do with who's in the majority and who's in the minority. Um, it, it, it has to do with the, what, is, what constitutes the rational basis for your position. It is a condition of rationality on your position that you be able to give a reason for it. Um, so if you want to say, I'm an atheist, but I have no burden. Well, what you're saying is I'm an atheist and my atheism has no rationale behind it. There's no rationality to it. Well, I think there is. <laughs> and I think that the burden of justification for atheism is actually fairly light. I think the burden of justification for theism, especially something like Christian theism or any of the Abrahamic faiths, because they posit such metaphysically extravagant beings, I think the burden of justification on that is really, really high. It's extremely heavy and cumbersome a burden. Uh, whereas I think um, the reasons for being highly skeptical and thinking that that's probably just made up, I think that's a very easy burden to discharge. Uh, so you don't have to, when you, when you, you uh, provide a burden of justification, when we talk about burden of proof, but a burden of proof is just the burden of justifying the position. You don't have to prove something unless you say, you think you can prove it. So if I say, I can prove that this book was written by Sam Harris. Okay, well, now I have to prove it. But if I said, supposing the, the, the name was torn off the cover, and I said, I think probably Sam Harris wrote this, I'd have to give reasons. But the reasons to make that belief um, uh, rational would not have to be as, as, um, as conclusive as if I said, I know who the author is, it's Sam Harris. Um, so it is the nature of the claim the proposition that you're putting forward, and it's the intensity or confidence with which you hold it that determines what your burden is and how high that burden is and how hard it is to discharge. Um, I don't know why atheists are sort of um, think that, that just because a lot of theists shirk their burden of justification, that it's, that it's rational for them to just do the same thing and insist that the other side has a burden of justification. So I, I have certainly seen this kind of binary thinking that you're talking about. I encounter it all the time. I think it's one of the most embarrassing liabilities within the online atheist activist movement um, that so many people who are perfectly intelligent, perfectly rational, interested in critical thinking, misunderstand the burden of proof or burden of justification. Um, I, I, it, it's an embarrassment. <laughs> it definitely is. I think one of the problems with it is is the name. In, in the way the Big Bang seems to indicate a massive explosion, burden of proof seems to conjure up the image that you have to prove this thing true. And it's actually, as you say, it's just justifying the position as rational. You're not making a knowledge claim. You're, you're saying what you think is the case, what you believe to be true. Um, but then there's obviously there's the resistance against words like belief as well, when that's just something that you accept as true or think most likely. And uh, you see a, a lot of these things. Um, and we've just had a, a comment from Sweet as well. It's it's they not only acknowledge a lack of rationality, they celebrate it with statements like rocks are atheists. <laughs> yeah, well, that that is that is that is acutely embarrassing. But see, yeah. what, that's just biting the bullet. I mean, you know, you say, you know. Atheism is, is just a lack of belief. And then someone says, well, wait a minute, rocks lack of belief. And so they hit you with this objection. And so you've got a choice. You can either say, okay, something's wrong with my, my definition of, of atheism as a lack of belief simpliciter. Obviously, I'd have to introduce other qualifiers to avoid this. Or I can just bite the bullet and say, yeah, rocks are atheists too. You know? And now it, turns out, now it turns out that atheists are in the majority. 
everywhere in the world and always have been. Um, in fact, atheists were in the majority before there were people. Uh, but they've got the lowest average IQ. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love that. <laughs> that's really great. I love that, Dave. Cheers. Um, so that's that's another thing that's embarrassing. And um, the resistance to the word belief. You know, people in the atheist community often say things like, and I've got videos about this kind of stuff where, where they'll say, you know, there isn't any design in nature, it just looks design, right? Um, and I mean, evolutionary biologists use the word design all the time. They don't say looks design, they say design, right? It's It's perfectly fine to say eyes are designed for seeing, hands are designed for grasping and so forth. Um, that, that is perfectly legitimate talk. There is a, there is a teleonomic uh, way of cashing out the word design that isn't teleological, that does not uh, have to uh, presuppose um, a, an intelligent purposer behind that. Um, that per- there is a perfectly naturalistic account of design in terms of uh, teleonomics that is, make, makes sense of that. So we don't have to be allergic to the word design. And similarly, we don't have to be allergic to the word belief. I hear... Um, I, I see memes, getting back to memes, I see memes every once in a while that will say something like, I don't believe in evolution. I accept the fact of evolution is true. Yeah. Well, I to accept, yeah. I mean, to, to accept something is true is to believe something is true. That's what the word believe means. So there's no need to be allergic to it, except that you are, are yourself as an atheist so mired in the discourse of faith without realizing it, that you think the religious people own the word belief when they um, accept something blindly, like blind faith, for instance. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the word faith. You know, you know, um, I have faith that the roof is not going to fall on me, right? Uh, right now, right? Well, that's a legitimate use of the word faith, right? There's no, there's no shell game that has to be played there, right? That's a legitimate use of the word faith. We don't have to avoid the word faith. It's a legitimate word. We all act on on articles of faith, including articles of blind faith, but not all articles of faith are articles of blind faith. And not all belief is irrational belief. There are rational beliefs and irrational beliefs, true beliefs and false beliefs, right? And you can hold beliefs like evolution. I believe evolution took place, and I believe evolution is the best explanation for uh, how uh, we arrived on the scene as a species. Um, That's a belief that I hold, but to say that it's a belief is not to say that it's merely some opinion pulled out of my backside that has no rational warrant or justification. There's simply no need to be allergic to these words. And every time people in the atheist movement um, um, repudiate words like faith and belief and design, they are just handing that vocabulary over to other people when they don't need to. That that they don't the religious don't own those words, right? That there's no need to be sort of provincial about this, right? Um, and I think it's a a, a, um, a, a mistake um, that we sometimes fall into. We we. Some of us want to distance our, ourselves from the discourse of faith so strongly that we will um, repudiate common sense ways of speaking, like saying, I believe that evolution is true, <laughs> because we're worried that we will be confused with um, someone who believes in some absolutely bizarre, unwarranted metaphysical extravagance. I yeah. think as well. Oops, sorry, Joe. No, no, go for it. Uh, I was just going to say, I think as well, a lot of people are so steeped in the idea of giving off the image of being a skeptic that often they don't realize that they're actually behaving irrational in an attempt to show just how skeptic they are. 
Yeah, well, skepticism is as skepticism does. Uh, <laughs> critical thinking is as critical thinking does. You don't just get to call yourself uh, a critical thinker or a skeptic. You have to do it. And which, when, what that means is you gotta have, you're going to have to learn some logic. You're going to have to fix, uh, you know, uh, of course, an informal logic or you know, look this stuff up online, um, you know, buy a textbook or something like that, um, take a philosophy course, you know, something like that. But you, mean, you don't have to um, undergo a formal course of, of training, but you want to learn some logic. You want to learn a bit of philosophy. You want you want to learn all of the of the tools that are in the in the in the toolkit of critical thinking, right? Um, I mean, so many people play name that fallacy and then get the fallacies wrong. They don't. Yeah. I mean, how many times do I have, I have I heard people say? And this is not just atheists. This is on all sides. People confuse a mere insult for an ad hominem argument. Yeah. You know. Um, and insults, I mean, some insults are ad hominems, but not all insults are ad hominems. Some insults are just insults. They're not fallacies. Um, so if, if I, you know, argue against your position um, and then I call you a dummy, um, it's not ad hominem unless I say that your conclusion is wrong because you're a dummy. Yeah. Right. Then then it's ad hominem. Uh, but otherwise, it's not an argument to, uh, ad hominem. So, I mean, if you want to be a critical thinker, um, or a skeptic, there's some work involved, um, and it's not terribly difficult. You don't have to take it on uh, overnight, but you know, you know, look up fallacies, look into them carefully, um, read a bit of philosophy. Um, if you're going to be tackling, you know, people's theology, you might want to acquaint yourself with their theology. I mean, there's lots of people who, you know, discuss. I mean, I get invited to, you know, discussions about theology, and I just don't know enough about these internecine battles between Christians, you know, you know, Arianism and Molinism and all of it. I mean, I just don't know these positions well enough for me to inject myself in those conversations. And so I don't. But by the same token, I don't go around saying, you know, these Molinists over here are idiots. Uh, the Calvinists are dummies because they believe this particular doctrine, right? Um, I might have other reasons why I think that, um, that their faith is irrational or uh, unwarranted, but I'm not going to sort of throw myself into certain kinds of um, arguments on, on specifics that I don't know anything about. And that happens a lot. Um, a lot of atheists, when they tumble out of their faith, are often very angry and hostile. I know I was. Um, and, um, and I think that's natural because what happens is as you fall out of your faith, um, one of the things that happens is you are fighting to hang on. And kind of the last thing you remember once you finally realize, you know what, I don't believe in any gods. You know or I don't believe this God, or something like that. Well, when you tumble out of your faith, one of the last vivid experiences of recalling what it's like to be religious is that that feeling of of insincerely holding on to a belief that you no longer really think is true, right? And a lot of atheists, I think, imagine that everyone out there and all the apologists are all in that state, that they are all just lying to themselves and they know they're lying to themselves and they're lying to everybody else um, as a result. Um, and they're very hostile um, and, and bitter. And I remember sort of going through that phase uh, myself. But I mean, that is a mistake. That is simply uh, not how most people who are religious are. I mean, we've all, all of us, defended things that we cherish using bad arguments. I mean, just think about political beliefs that you have, right? Political values. You probably haven't studied a lot of political science. You've probably not taken any courses in political theory. If you're a liberal, you probably have never read up much on liberalism. 
if you're if you believe in free speech, you've probably read nothing on the subject of free speech and what the actual classical defenses of free speech are and what the classical objections to it are, right? Um, so most of us are untutored in a lot of our fundamental uh, beliefs. Uh, and when we sort of tumble out of our, our faith, we remember that feeling of, of, of arguing in bad faith with people in defense of our faith. Um, and it's kind of embittering. And I, and I think that is what motivated me. I might be projecting this onto a lot of people here, but I think it's, that's more common than, than people recognize. And the further you get away from that, that feeling of, of what it was like to be you know, pissed off and disappointed and feeling like you've been lied to and cheated and that you were lying to yourself, and, right? The further you get away from that, the easier it is to sort of mellow out about it. But um, I think that that's a, that is a big ingredient for a, a lot of uh, newly minted atheists. And there's a lot of people who were born into atheistic and secular households who never had religion, but then have had like really bad experiences with religious people um, or religious institutions. And they can't fathom how anyone can ever believe these things. It just seems so, you know, far out and far-fetched. How can anybody believe anything so, so, so preposterous? And so they get very, very impatient with them. But they don't do the homework of asking themselves, well, you know, what, what from the standpoint of a believer is the rationale, the justification for it? Why, by their lights, does it seem to make so much sense and seem so indispensable. And if you can't sort of answer for yourself, why does it seem to make sense to them? If you're forever asking yourself, I don't know how they could believe this stuff. Okay, you need to do some homework then, Yeah. right? You either need to talk to these people or you need to do some reading or something like that, or maybe take some courses. Um, but at least, I mean, when you're arguing with a person, you should at least be able to say why they believe what they believe and, 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 and then point out why, why you think it's wrong. But if you can't get as far as fathoming how they could possibly believe this, then clearly your reconstruction of their of their thinking on the matter is is inadequate somehow, right? And and the, the proof of that is I get this from religious people all the time towards me. How could you possibly not believe in God? It's impossible. How how do you execute any moral decision making without factoring in what an all seeing God is who who issues commands? Um, dictates. How do you do this? How, where's your guidance? Where do your morals come from? Right? How, you know, right? how do you ground your morality? And how do you know what is moral? They're, they're, they're perplexed. They don't think they, they, they're, 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 they're gobsmacked about how we can possibly engage uh, in moral action and moral deliberation. They think we should be completely rudderless and just be doing any old thing. And they'll even say things like, well, if I was an atheist, I'd just be raping and killing and stealing. <laughs> well, it's funny, I'm not doing that. So clearly your model of, of what is required for morality and moral, um, moral discourse and moral reasoning and moral action is inadequate. You should rethink that. And so I, 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 I play this same argument when I encounter theists who do this to me, but I do it to my fellow atheists when they do it to the religious. You, when, whenever you are tempted to think they're purely irrational, um, they're, 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 they're mentally ill. There's something effective in their thinking. Um, I cannot imagine, I cannot understand how they could believe this. As soon as you find yourself asking that question out loud or to yourself, that's when you need to ask or dig into, into it, you know, do some reading or something like that. And do some reading from from their perspective as well. Don't just read the the yeah. atheist commentary on it because you're going to get one side of the picture, and you're you're going right. to just get the instant. Oh well, it's irrational because of blah blah blah. Rather than actually, well, this person or this this denomination believes these certain things, and this is why they believe it, and they don't agree with this part of the Bible because they think it's been 
um, retconned at this point. And there's suddenly, it's a lot more complicated than theists are just irrational, um, that they've got no grounding for their beliefs. I, there's so much more to it than that. Um, and you actually mentioned a few things there that I see quite common um, within within the atheist community online, is the rejection of philosophy, logic, and using the title of skeptic without understanding what skepticism really is and being more of a denialist, you know, just constantly going, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, rather than actually taking the time to, to be a proper skeptic and turn that skepticism in on yourself as well. Yeah, well, um, boy, I have a lot to say on that. And I'm just a little too long-winded to even dare start. Okay, let me, let me try to say something. Okay, so I hear a lot of atheists talk about um, skepticism uh, while sneering at things like philosophy and logic. And that's because they have a very naive view of science. Um, they, they tend to have a very uh, scientific, positivistic view of science. Um, and they don't understand enough about logic and philosophy to understand that practically everything that is in the, in the, the toolbox of critical thinking skills comes from logic and philosophy. You know, they'll, they'll talk about Occam's razor. Well, where do you think that came from? You know, who do you think Sir William of Occam was? You know, he was a philosopher. In fact, he was a theologian. Um, you know, they'll talk about probability theory. Who do you think came up with probability theory? It's Blaise Pascal, the guy who gave us Pascal's wager. You know, it's, um, that guy was playing the odds, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, so much of, of what we think of as critical thinking um, and uh, comes from, from philosophy. Uh, people will talk about science they'll, they'll say well science is not about proving things it's a it, it, it's about testing it's about hypothesis testing which is which is correct right it's about falsifiability or reputability well, who came up with that uh, sir Karl popper a philosopher of science who was <laughs> trying to understand what is the logical engine of scientific advancement how does it work how do we distinguish between pseudoscience and real science and everything else every other kind of area of human discourse, right? He came up with this principle of falsifiability. That was his recommendation for what Mark, that was the demarcation point, the, the principle that separated pseudoscience from, from real science, for instance, right? So practically everything that a lot of these naive science boosters will trot out um, uh, as um, articles of critical thinking are in fact things developed in philosophy, taught in every philosophy department, taught in every critical thinking course, including logic. Uh, what happens is, though, people hear a lot of bad philosophy, and they assume that, well, then that's what just philosophy is like. But that's no different than bad science. There's a lot of pseudoscience out there, but we don't say, oh, well, that, you know, that's pseudoscience, and therefore so much science. Look, there's pseudo-philosophy, too. You know, Deepak Chopra, that's pseudo-philosophy. <laughs> and everything that comes out of the mouth of Oprah Winfrey, pseudo-philosophy, right? These are just pseudo-profundities coming out of their mouth, right? Um, so um, contemporary analytic philosophy is actually extremely rigorous. It's, um, it's, quite, it's quite difficult to do. Um, and learning informal logic and formal logic um, it can be a little bit difficult. But I mean, it's, I mean, really, ultimately, it's not much more difficult than arithmetic. Uh, so if you, if you can learn arithmetic, you can learn formal logic. Um, there are more advanced logics that are much harder than that. But I mean, basic. You know, first order propositional logic and predicate calculus is easy to learn. It's no harder than arithmetic. Um, so 
it would behoove people who fancy themselves skeptics and critical thinkers that they that they do this and that they stop poo-pooing philosophy. Uh, when they do that, they don't realize that they are discrediting themselves as authorities on the subject of how to reason properly, because they're showing that they don't know anything about where these <laughs> tools come from and how they've been delivered to us. Right? They have no idea where they came from. Um, and they have, they often will distinguish between reason and evidence. I don't want reasons. I don't want to, I don't want a formal argument. I don't, I just want evidence, evidence, evidence. And by evidence, they want, they want some perceptual experiment. Some, some, they want to be able to see something. They want some empirical experiment that they could, they could look at. Well, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, that's important. You want, you want to have that kind of evidence where, where, where you can have it, but there's no evidence without a theory and without rationality. Evidence is only evidence for or against a theory, yep. right? Yeah. A, a piece of evidence, right? A measurement that you take speaks for or against some theory because that theory either predicts that that will happen or it predicts it won't happen, right? And there can be multiple theories that all predict that this will happen, right? So, I mean, you know, if I take this, this cup here and, you know, and I, I say, you know, I, I, if I let it go, it'll fall, okay? All right. I have a theory about why that will happen. It's not just based on induction um, that I've seen this happen in the past. Uh, it's not just based on that. There's actually a theory of physics that explains why when I let this go, gravity will overtake it and it'll fall, right? If it was made out of something else, if this was made um, out of hydrogen, it was just some kind of colored hydrogen or something like that, and I let it go, it might just dissipate or something like that, right? There's a theory that would explain why that would happen, right? Um, so any piece of so-called evidence is only evidence within the context of the theory. That is to say, you have to have a theory that lets you interpret evidence. All, this is what, 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 it, what is meant when people say that, that, that evidence is theory-laden. That is, a, something is only, only counts as evidence within the body of some theory or other, or multiple theories, multiple competing theories. And so that's why evidence can help you adjudicate between theories. You can eliminate certain theories on the basis of the evidence. Some theories don't predict this or predict something else would happen. So we can get rid of those theories. Now there's a remaining set of theories that all predicted this particular thing. Now we need a further experiment to try to narrow uh, down these theories to one if possible. So there is no such thing as evidence outside of logic, outside of an argument, because a theory is an argument, right? Any, any, any hypothesis, if you say, if I let go of this cup, it will fall to the ground. That's a hypothesis. That's a theory, right? That's an argument. If A, then B. A, therefore B, right? Not B, therefore not A. Right? That's an argument. Predictions, the, the ability to make a prediction, the ability to test a hypothesis is the ability <laughs> to formulate arguments in modus ponens and modus tollens form, okay? And you should know that. Right. Um, so when people say, you know, I, I don't want I don't I don't want reasons. I don't want arguments. I want evidence. Well, look, you don't have evidence without arguments. You get them both because something only constitutes evidence in the context of an argument, in the context of a larger theory. So there's a kind of naivete that I think infects um, the new atheism. Um, I, I, this infected the old atheism, but I think it's particularly galling now because, I mean, the more people sort of divest themselves of of religion and religiosity, the more people start to call themselves critical thinkers and fancy themselves free thinkers and, and skeptics, 
but don't know anything about critical thinking and skepticism, the more embarrassing this is. You are not a good ambassador for, for your side of the argument here. Um, in fact, you discredit yourself, right? And people are right to look at you and point and laugh, and you make yourself the object of ridicule. So, I mean, no one should call, you shouldn't just award yourself a PhD in critical thinking and skepticism because you tumbled out of your faith or because you had the good fortune never to have been born into one, right? That is a mistake. That is a conceit that many of us in the atheist um, movement are guilty of. And we would, we would do best to sort of disabuse ourselves of that and point it out to our fellow atheists when they, mm. when they commit this mistake. Yeah. But that can obviously be met with uh, quite a lot of, um, well, it's back to the binary thought again. Oh, you're not going along with the standard dogma of what all of us seem to believe about something. Therefore, you must be a theist troll. I get that one quite a lot. But I think as yeah, well, I got that from Aaron Ra, who said, uh, who accused me. He didn't accuse me of being a theist, but he said, you're advancing arguments I've only ever heard out of the arguments of, of theists. And I thought, well, were, those, were, those were good arguments from, from theists. You were, you were writing them off. You were writing off perfectly good arguments because they were theists. And now you're writing me off, even though I'm an atheist and thinking the only thing that could motivate me is that I, I'm a theist or, you know, secretly a theist or thinking like a theist, right? So, uh, yeah, no, that, that I mean, that's tribalism at work. And yeah, I mean, definitely. that's, presumably we want to get away from that definitely and i think the the, the tribalism has also um even though there's no official leaders of atheism there are a lot of people that are looked up to like you mentioned aaron Ra and matt dillahunty and richard dawkins and all of that sort of thing who do have the ear of the atheist community and people believe what they say without question they they take on what they say back to the the whole rocks are atheists so many agreed with that or the argument that atheism is only a lack of belief and so many just buy that just because these people have said it and the same has come from people like Dawkins who have said philosophy is dead therefore Dawkins said it, it must be true uh, Stephen Hawking said it it must be true and these people have been elevated to a pope-like status uh, without really good reason because they're talking about topics that they're not necessarily experts in. It might be all right to trust Dawkins, say, on something about evolutionary biology. It might make sense to trust him. I'd still do your duty of care and go, I haven't heard this before. I'm going to see if this is verified elsewhere. But if he's going to make a statement about philosophy or plumbing, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily take his word on that. Oh, well, what you need to do is, you know, take this thing out of your pipes. Like, really? I might talk to a plumber about that, actually, mate. And the same should be said for their statements on things like philosophy. They're not philosophers. Maybe take some time to listen to some atheist philosophers on philosophy and see if it really is dead, because it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's certainly not dead. No, no, that's absolutely true. We, we have sort of elevated some people to sort of, you know, um, leader um, status and they get a kind of cult-like following. Um, I, mean, I mean, it can happen to, to anybody um, if they um, are successful enough um, um, at, in, in some area, right? I mean, so Aaron Ra is, I really, I mean, I don't have credentials in a field like taxonomy, for instance. So I can't actually evaluate if he's any good at taxonomy, but he seems to me to be extremely knowledgeable. And I've never heard anyone in the field of taxonomy or biology gainsay him and say he's all wrong. Uh, in fact, I know he's reversed himself on some, some things um, um, as, a, as a result of uh, just being in dialogue with people in, in the field, stuff like that. So I, I think that 
on, on a subject like that, he is rightly to be admired and praised. And I, I, I for one, am grateful for um, a series that he is, uh, he's made on YouTube, like uh, the Foundational Falsehoods of, of Creationism, for instance. I think that those, that, I mean, those were great videos. Uh, they were instructive to a lot of people. They are instructive to me. So, you know, I, I'm grateful to Aaron for the positive contributions he's made in, in those areas. But there are other areas where I think he doesn't know what he's talking about. So, I mean, for instance, he ends up arguing with someone like Saitan Brukenkate, who's trotting out what, what, in my view, is a really dumbed-down, lunk-headed version of presuppositionalism, which I think is poor apologetic to begin with. But, it, you know, it, it, Saitan uh, Brukenkate's version is, I thought, particularly clumsy. Um, and Aaron is completely bamboozled by it and doesn't know that he's being bamboozled. Um, um, and um, doesn't know how to answer it and falls it into every trap that's laid out for him in this um, clumsy argument. Um, it's not his fault. He doesn't know better. But where I think he is at fault is that a lot of people who do know better have told him, Aaron, this is a bad argument. You shouldn't argue uh, uh, on this subject. You should avoid the, um, debating these particular questions. You're, you're not the Pope of atheism. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> sort of... Uh, uh, make pronouncements, you know, uh, in an ex cathedra, uh, and, and expect that everyone's going to sort of follow your examples. Um, so, you know, you had an interview with a fellow named Tim O'Neill, who's a historian, uh, on this channel, yeah. which I watched with interest and I, I've read his blog for a while now. Tim O'Neill is excellent, fascinating person. He has, he has educated me on a whole number of things. He's completely talked me out of a whole bunch of, um, pseudo historical notions that I had in my head that I had re- I heard repeated, and I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, given how much interest I had in European history, I ought to have known better. You know, think, you know, BS stories about Galileo and the church and stuff like that, that I just swallowed hook, line, and sinker because I had heard them repeated endlessly. Uh, and I had never heard anyone who was really an authority argue against them cogently. Uh, well, you had him on, and he was arguing about um, some uh, things, some historical statements that Arn Ra had made. Um, uh, that were erroneous, you know. It, it, I, it, it's a little disappointing um, because I admire Arn in, in, in some respects. Um, when it comes to things like evolutionary biology and taxonomy, I think he's incredibly strong, um, and I'm grateful to him uh, for his contributions there. But when it comes to talking about philosophy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And when it comes to history, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, it's not his fault. You can't know what you're talking about in these domains unless you have studied them any more than you could know about biology and taxonomy unless you've been studied. It's impossible. But there is this kind of conceit that science is real. That's a real science. But, but the arts and humanities, history, philosophy, linguistics, all of these, that's just, the emperor has no clothes. We don't have to take those fields seriously. <laughs> and so what happens is you get a lot of people that are sort of proceeding with a kind of naive scientism who think that if something is an empirical science and it's something that you can do with a, a white lab coat, then you take it seriously and you have to do a deep dive and you have to study it. But when it comes to these other domains, they have nothing. Um, and so you can just, from your armchair, make pronouncements about what happened in history and what, you know, what philosophical arguments are bogus and, and so forth. I mean, I recently had an argument with someone who said that every argument for God's existence is a God of the gaps argument. You know, and they're like, no, they're not all God. <laughs> I think they're all fallacious in, in some form or other, but they're not all subject to the same fallacy. Right? They don't. They're all operating the same fallacy. So, yeah, th- that is something that happens uh, in the atheist movement. Um, I don't know that that is something that has anything to do with the new atheism. No, that seems to me it was something that was going on well before 
the new atheism was launched. I mean, I was I was seeing this in the '90s uh, and in the late '80s. I mean, when in, in sort of the dawn of the of the internet, when everything was just command line interface, you know, in Unix and on news groups and things like that, Usenet, Usenet groups, there were all these discussions going on on, uh, on uh, groups like Talk Origins and, and, and so forth. And there was the same pattern of, of ignorance of people knowing an awful lot in some, some area and then assuming, everyone assuming that those experts could make pronouncements in uh, other domains of inquiry and just taking what they were saying at face value and running with it. Uh, the difficulty for us today is that people have bigger platforms now. Um, and if you're sort of an established authority, if you're someone like Aaron Ra, um, who I think um, has made important contributions, not just in evolution, evolution and taxonomy, by the way, um, to our understanding of it. I mean, he's made contributions politically. I mean, he has been involved in preventing certain kinds of uh, uh, doctrines and, and ideas being taught in schools, you know, at the school board level and stuff like that. I mean, it is important. This is important work that he has done, right? And we should all be grateful to him for for helping sort of keep up this this, this wall of separation between church and state. Uh, but uh, when you have the, the kind of status that he has, then I, I want to quote Stan Lee, you know, uh, or Spider Man: "Great power comes great responsibility," and I think he ought to be more responsible uh, in what he says. Um, you mentioned Matt Dillahunty. He's another figure, I think, who who um, has an outsized uh, influence in the in the community of atheists online, and uh, I mean Matt's a friend of mine. I admire him greatly, and uh, he is someone who I think sometimes you know makes real whopper of uh, errors. But he is someone who ups his game, like you know. But like everybody, it takes us time to sort of change our arguments and refine them, mm-hmm. and correct them, <clears throat> and retract them, and stuff like that. But there there are certainly things that he has said. And, Arguments that he advances that I think are are mistaken. I think his emphasis on the lack theism, for instance, I think is a mistake. I don't think he needs to do that at all. That's not his own position. He, he would, he'll be the first person to tell you that he thinks there, there aren't any gods, that they're all made up. Aaron um, Ra will, will tell you the same thing, actually, candidly, that he thinks okay. there are no gods. That are, yeah, they're all strong or positive uh, atheists or Gnostic uh, atheists, uh, if you will. But um, uh, nevertheless, um, when they conduct their discourse with theists, they always fall back into this lack theism. And I think that makes us look weak. I think we we look like we're not able to defend, or not at least not willing to defend, um, uh, the, the views that we actually hold. And people are right to assume that if you're not willing to defend them, it's probably because you can't defend them, right? They have to be forgiven if they think, if they lead to that conclusion, which certainly springs to mind. <clears throat> so um, I think politically, strategically, uh, we don't need that. I think that's a, it's a mistake. And if you sort of want to advance the cause of atheism, you need full-blooded arguments for why you think God doesn't exist. I mean, there's all kinds of books that you can buy on the subject. That will, there are textbooks on the subject. There are college books on, on, on the subject, on the, on the philosophy of religion that advance atheistic arguments. Um, there are atheistic scholars, you know, Graham Alpey, for instance, I think is a terrific uh, philosopher who advances pretty, pretty strong uh, arguments uh, for atheism. So um, that that stuff is is all out there, just waiting to be read. You don't have to sort of limit yourself to watching the atheist experience and parroting uh, the line that atheism is a lack of belief, and you don't have to defend anything, and then just criticize other people. Um, sometimes with bad arguments, right? Um, although I have to say, yeah. on the whole, Matt's arguments, his critiques of religion, are often very good. Um, I think sometimes he uh, 
not right, but I mean, it wouldn't matter what argument you put forward, somebody out there would disagree. Mm. Um, there's a lot on the subject. Uh, but I think on balance, he's actually a pretty good counter apologist. Um, and um, I think he's kind of ideally poised, situated to to sort of advance a strong, positive case for atheism. So, and I wish that he would, because he's a good public speaker and he's a skilled debater. Um, and uh, if I was a good speaker uh, and could extemporize uh, in public, and if I could think on my feet fast enough to debate, I would, you know. But as I said, I, I play to my strengths. So <laughs> exposition is what I'm better at. Arguing on my feet uh, in the heat of the moment, not so good. <laughs> yeah, I understand that one. Uh, it's I, I like to have time to collect my thoughts, and if someone presents something, I, I like to actually have the time to look into it and go, well, how true is what they've said? And I'll spend time reading a number of different articles for or against their claim. So you can't really do that in in a in a debate, especially if it's something you haven't heard before, and you're like, oh god, I'm really unprepared for this one, you know. But if you've got the time, and it's one of the things I do enjoy um, more about having a conversation like that online, because you can go, oh, can you? If you've got any good resources on that, I'll have a look for a few myself. I'll read the for and against, and I can make a, a more informed decision than, than you can do on the debate side of things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that there is there is that problem with elevating these people and, and particular bodies as well, like the, the ACA and the AA. I mean, they, they, they might do a lot of uh, good work politically, uh, as you mentioned, you know, keeping creationism and stuff like that out of schools. It's all really good work but it does mean that they also seem to argue more with an ideological perspective uh, a lot of the the lactheism um argument seems to be around wanting as many numbers as you can so that you've got more voting power in a particular area um rather than it being based on particularly strong logic and then it comes um a lot of weak arguments come off of that oh well it's the default position oh it's always been that it's you know and you're just like, it hasn't. Look, let's look throughout history. Here you go. Here's all the examples. This is how it was originally used as atheists. This is uh, how the first atheists use it. These are a number of different ways it has been used. But this is why this one happens to be the most logical. It's just basic propositional logic. This is why this is the belief that gods do not exist. And that's why that definition makes the most sense. Um, and all the the concise um different ontological positions it makes it really easy to infer what people do and don't believe about the proposition something like a god exists whereas just referring to everything that doesn't believe in a god as an atheist well it's open to to category error and silly statements like you know rocks are atheist and all of that yeah i, I want to say so, clarify something because um the, the term lactheism is a a term that I introduced around 2014, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, 14, 15, I don't know. Whenever I entered, whatever year it was, I sort of started the debate. I got into an online Facebook discussion with a fellow, another fellow atheist named Greg Ray, who was arguing for, uh, you know, lack theism. And I, I, I called it lack theism. Um, and I wanted it, this term to distinguish it from, from atheism, um, because really what they're describing is mere non-theism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I, a lot of people, I think, have sort of taken the wrong lesson and think that the this dispute here is just terminological. That it's just, oh, who cares? So, you, you know, you're quibbling over a definition. Okay, well, yes, we are, we are quibbling over a definition. But the definition matters. But 
But it doesn't matter so much that I would care if everyone started using the word atheism the way American atheists like, like to use it as lacking. That I would, I could, I'd be fine with that. I mean, I think it would be a mistake. Uh, it would make it harder to read old books <laughs> uh, and not so not so old books, <laughs> the current books, the current literature on the subject. Uh, you'd be a little bit puzzled by it because uh, they seem to be uh, have an incorrect understanding of uh, atheism uh, under the new definition. But um, the the difficulty is not with the definition. It's not about that. It's that the argument that's advanced, that the argument that motivates people preferring the lackiest definition is a preoccupation with the burden of justification, and they're getting that wrong. That's what's wrong. So what I, what I, what I see as a liability within the online atheist or activist movement uh, in connection with the definition of atheism is not that they're settling on an on a, uh, incorrect or non-traditional definition. I mean, that's not the end of the world. What's wrong is that the, the motivation for adopting and recommending this, this new definition is a, is a poor understanding of the notion of rational or logical um, burden of justification or burden of proof. And so they, the very reason that they are advancing this definition is to promote a, 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 a bad epistemology. It is a, it is a false epistemology. Right? That's a liability within any movement that's supposed to be interested in critical thinking and rationality and advancing scientific values um, and skepticism. It's important that you get this concept and related concepts straight. If you, I mean, if you, if, if you're going around uh, thinking that you know epistemology is nonsense because it's philosophy, well, I got news for you. Everything that we call rationality, skepticism, critical thinking is epistemology, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's what epistemology deals with. It, that's what it concerns itself with. Is that that kind of stuff? Um, and it's important that you have a sound and and uh, intelligent epistemology, not one that violates what we understand to be true about um, how justification works and when you have um, a, uh, a, a a rational obligation um, to justify something. I mean, you don't have a I don't have a justification. I don't have an obligation to justify any of my beliefs to you. I have a discursive obligation. That is, if if I say you know you know there's scotch whiskey in this cup and you know you, you perhaps have some reason to, to think that that's not true uh, uh perhaps you heard me overheard me saying that it was something else um that it was tea or something like that and you, you have reason to think that i might be trying to fool you or something like that you might have grounds for your doubt uh you might say ozzy you're gonna have to give me some reason why i should believe that. now i can't be forced to do this and i have no obligation to you, save for a discursive one, right? For the purposes of me persuading you, right? I have an obligation. That is, if I want to persuade you, it behooves me to give you reasons to believe what I just said about what's in that cup, okay? But forget what I said to you. Supposing I didn't say it. Supposing I thought to myself, there's scotch whiskey in this cup. If I actually believe that to be true, especially if I believe it strongly, there ought to be a reason why I take it to be true, right? <laughs> I don't need you in the room. I don't need to have uttered anything. So the concept of burden of justification is a condition of rationality. If I want to think of myself as a rational agent, it behooves me to have reasons for what I think is true, what I think is false, what I think is rational, for what I think is irrational, for what I think is warranted, for what I think is unwarranted. And so if I think all God beliefs are unwarranted, that's a positive claim. Mm -hmm. If I think God 
if I if I if I take seriously the title the God delusion, look, believing in God's only a delusion if there's no God. Yeah. Right? Right? That's the claim that there isn't a God. If I say gods are made up, gods are imaginary. fantasy, gods are myths, gods are imaginary, every one of those is the statement that that the universe includes no gods. If I believe any of those statements, doesn't matter what I tell people, doesn't matter how I describe or define my atheism. If I think any of those statements are true, I am committed to the belief that there isn't a God. Well, if that belief is going to be rational, doesn't matter what I tell people, never mind any discursive responsibility I have to people or, or reasons for trying to persuade people. If I want to fancy myself a, a reasonable and rational person, I need a reason for thinking that that's the case. And such reasons abound. And there's no reason not to prefer them and just not to just cough them up when people ask, why are you an atheist? Why not just tell them? Mm. Why play hide the ball with what you actually believe and say, I didn't say there's no God. I just lack a belief. Yeah, yeah but on, you know, honestly, do you actually believe that there's a God or do you think it's BS? Right. <laughs> and, and if you think it's B I mean, there are some people who really do lack a belief in the sense that they they don't lack a belief because they believe it's false. Like I'm a lack theist, right? I'm a non-theist, but I'm a non-theist or a lack theist because I'm an atheist, because I think there's no gods. But there are some people out there who really um, uh, don't think that there isn't a God, right? And if, but they, they don't think that there's a God either. Those people are just on the fence. They're undecided, right? They can reach no conclusion. They find some of the arguments for God good. They can think of some arguments that sort of weaken any confidence so they can't actually affirm it as, right? So they're just on the fence, right? They go back and forth, right? We have a word for those people, the undecided, the inconclusive. That word is agnostic, right? Um, that, um, now, th those people are not atheists, and they're not theists. They're, they're agnostic. They're undecided, right? Um, when they say, I don't know, they're not saying, I lack knowledge. They're saying, I don't know, as in, I can't make up my mind. Just like if I said to you, do you want to go out for Chinese food or Italian food or Hungarian food? And you go, oh, I don't know. You decide. Yeah. When you say, I yeah. don't know, you're saying, I can't decide. Yeah. You're not saying I lack knowledge or justified true belief. <laughs> You're just saying I don't know is the most common way of expressing inconclusiveness and indecision in English, yeah. in modern English. That's how we say it. We say I don't know. Um, uh, so I don't know sometimes has nothing to do with knowledge. It has to do with inconclusiveness. It's just one of the, the idiomatic expressions that we use. It's the most common idiomatic expression. Uh, we have for expressing indecision or inconclusiveness. How often have you ever told a person, I'm inconclusive or indecisive on the matter? You just say, I don't know. I can't make up my mind. That's what you say. You say, I don't know. Um, so the difficulty I have with, um, with the um, online atheist movement right now has nothing to do with the new atheism. I think it just co coincides with the new, new atheism in time. But the difficulty that I'm having with it now with this promulgation of this lacteous definition um, of atheism is that it promulgates a very bad, naive epistemology, and there's no need. To, there's no need to play hide the ball with your beliefs for why you think there's not God, right? Yeah. Or, or if you think that uh, belief in God is uh, malevolent. If you're an anti-theist in the sense that you think that religions are bad and we would be better rid of re religion and religiosity, well, presumably you have good reasons for thinking that. You could list all of the things that you think are are the, the social and cultural and personal liabilities of religion and relig religiosity. So there's no reason to play hide the ball in this way. There's no reason to embrace a bad epistemology 
just to get the other guy to defend their belief and so that you can attack it without having to defend yours. A, a, a better way at this stage to advance atheism, if that's your agenda, right, or, or to generate acceptance for atheism, is to, to just be um, uh, forthright in your belief and your reasons. That's what it means to help people confront your incredulity, right? If you want people to confront your incredulity, then give it to them. Let them have it, right? You don't have to be rude or mean, but you can just you know, spill the beans about why you think this is BS, right? And people do it all the time. It's really funny. The same person that will tell you, I'm not advancing a positive position. I didn't make a positive claim. I merely lack belief. I don't have a burden of proof. In the next breath, we'll tell you why they think there's no gods. <laughs> there isn't any good evidence for a god. Uh, evidence for for God where that where we ought to find it is missing. Your god concepts are all uh, in, in co internally incoherent and inconsistent. Um, we have discovered things that are inconsistent um, uh, uh, with the existence uh, of a god. You know things like the problem of evil and stuff like that. I mean, people have no difficulty generating all the reasons why they think there's there's no god right like look at all of the things that we make up you know everything from dragons to to fairies to to sasquatch to the loch ness monster to you know you name it right i mean the the, the, the bestiary of, of of things that go bump in the night that we have invented ghosts and goblins and giants and sea monsters and angels and demons and gods right is endless that's a good reason for thinking, you know what, unless there's good reason for thinking this critter exists, this God critter, unless there's better reason for thinking that Sasquatch exists, I'm not going to believe one over the other. I don't think there's good reason to believe in Sasquatch, and I don't think there's any better reason to believe in a God. Uh, now, the arguments and objections are going to be different, right, uh, because the, the, these are different claims that, that entail different um, uh, experiences that you would expect to have, evidence that you'd expect to find, and so forth. Uh, but people. Atheists are constantly putting out their arguments, sometimes good, sometimes bad, against all of these things. And then in the next breath, they'll tell you, I don't have a responsibility to do it. You were just doing it. Why don't, so all you have to do, all you have to do is do what you're always doing, which is give your reasons for why you think it's BS, and then admit that you have a rational responsibility to give those reasons, which is why your, your position is the better or reasonable one. Yeah. Right. But what's most unreasonable of all, which makes no sense at all right now, is this 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 this, this, this shell game of, of giving your reasons and then saying, I don't have to give reasons. My position <laughs> isn't a position, but it's a rational position, but it's not a position at all because um, I make no claims. I, it's just you really discredit and disqualify yourself um, uh, as, as sort of belonging to the kingdom of rationality and critical thinking and skepticism when you talk this way. Yeah. Um, so I, I encourage my, my, my fellow atheists um, to, to stop talking the, uh, in these ways and just just go ahead. Continue being a new atheist. Um, let people uh, feel that conversational pressure when 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 the discourse of faith comes up um, and confront uh, uh, these 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 ideas and these doctrines politely. You don't have to be a jerk about it. Right. And you don't have to play hide the ball um, with your views, because presumably you have some reasons for your atheism. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, yeah, we we've had we have a very very similar conversation uh, as as you've just said there. Um, it's nice to hear a, a, another atheist say a similar sort of thing uh, because generally you are 
hit with a wall of people who are just so resistant. No, there's no burden of proof. No, that's I've got a rational position. It's not a position. I'm not even on the game. I'm not playing hide the ball. I'm not even playing on the field. And you're like, and, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't believe gods don't exist, but I believe they're imaginary. And like, okay, so what's imaginary? It's something doesn't have an objective reality. So therefore is not real, therefore does not exist. And like, yeah. oh yeah, but yeah. And you just, you see the circular thing going round and round and round. And as you say, it's quite easy for someone to actually justify their position. It's a general misunderstanding of things like the burden of proof and rationality. And the problem as well is, is you are met with such strong resistance when you're trying to explain these things, in a, even in a calm manner, because they've been told so much they don't have a burden. It's almost like the second you suggest, no, there is a burden, but it's not the same as making a positive claim. You're just trying to justify your position as rational. And you get that instant you're a theist troll or similar. Uh, and and it, it's very, very, very difficult to talk to some people about these things. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of the conversations can be very fruitful. And from time to time, you reach someone and they're like, oh, I never actually thought about it that way. Oh, yeah. So wait, all I have to do is explain why I think the creation story is completely bull because of all of this evidence showing the order it happened and when it happened. Oh, OK. So that's all I have to. Oh, yeah. And that's great. And it's lovely to have a conversation like that where someone has that light bulb moment. But most of them do seem to be very antagonistic conversations. You get shouted at a hell of a lot just for suggesting that maybe there is a burden. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I became a little bit notorious online for a number of years advancing this argument. I don't think it won me uh, very many friends, but I mean, you know, I, I, I took comfort in the fact that that people who understand logic and uh, and philosophy um, were fully sort of uh, behind me and had my back <clears throat> in these matters. So that was that was some comfort. It's cold comfort though when you're sort of on Facebook and you're arguing in a an atheist Facebook group and you're saying no no that's wrong and then they all pile on and then they all feel because they're all of them in agreement against you. You know that they are all thinking boy this guy's an idiot. Um and so yeah I mean I've certainly experienced that. Um but I mean this is a war of ideas, right? I mean the the, the all of the great debate uh about God's existence and religions and atheism uh, this is just a war of ideas, right? And there can be a war of ideas within a certain faction. And so we are the faction of non-believers, let's say. Uh, and, you know, there can be misunderstandings um, within our own atheology. Um, so that's what this is. This is an internecine sort of within, within the walls uh, of, our, of our own uh, camp here. This is an internecine struggle uh, uh, about how to proceed strategically and how to proceed rationally. Uh, and I think, I mean, strategically, it's just uh, a mistake. Um, so never mind uh, the rationality of it. I think I've made the case for why I think it's a condition of rationality. But um, think for a moment strategically. I mean, how many times has an atheist gone up against a theist and said, I don't have a burden of justification and been met with the person just blankly looking at them like they're an idiot? Uh, or rolling their eyes. Oh, you're one of those atheists who thinks he's not making any positive claims right after saying gods are made up, gods are BS, gods are imaginary, gods are not, you know, you know, um, know, God's a delusion, you know, and all of that stuff, right? So um, you discredit yourself, you look foolish to that theist, and everybody else who's who's fair-minded and objective. I mean, remember, there's a lot of people who um, 
are sort of on the fence out there about God's existence. They either don't believe, they do believe, or they're undecided, and they're watching, and watching discussions between, <clears throat> say, a, an articulate theist and, um, you know, someone who's just watched a lot of atheist experience. Um, <laughs> and, and the guy who's watched a lot of atheist experience um, shows, but hasn't sort of looked in, into any critical thinking, hasn't read any philosophy on the subject, <clears throat> trots out this line, I'm not making a positive claim after having made a bunch of positive claims um, or done so implicitly. Um, I don't have a burden of proof. Um, your view is irrational, but I don't have to tell you why it's irrational. You know, <laughs> uh, you, know uh, you just have to tell me why it's rational. You know, stuff like that. That guy who's arguing that way against someone who's a little bit better schooled and informed on this is going to look bad to any onlooker, to any um, fair-minded onlooker, right, who's not devoted to some particular side winning, is going to think, this, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. This person is playing hide the ball. I mean, I think we, look, we, we make ourselves look like we are not capable of defending our positions, and I think we embarrass ourselves this way, uh, and we lose ground. Uh, we discredit ourselves in, not just to our opponents, but to sort of fair-minded onlookers who are saying, wait a minute, uh, you just got through saying this, that all of this stuff is nonsense and that it's irrational, but you don't think it's false, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you saying, you know? Um, so it's strategically, <laughs> I think it's, it's not a good idea. So I, 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 I want people to sort of proceed with the new atheism. I'm, I am not someone who uses the word the expression new atheism ironically or sarcastically or derisively, although I think some people do. And I think that's happening in part because there are so many bad intellectual habits that have infected the online atheist movement, yeah. uh, which coincides. Um, I mean, a lot of these things started before the new atheism. I mean, really all of these things that we've discussed, all of the stuff about lackeyism, burden of proof, that all started before the new atheism. That was already out there. It was in YouTube videos. Bionic Dance was making videos about this stuff way before the new atheism. You know, um, uh, the atheist experience show was, was, was banging on about this stuff. I was encountering it in blogs and stuff like that. So, I mean, that, this, this goes back, you know, uh, a couple of decades now. Um, so you can't chalk that up to the new atheism. Uh, but I think if you really are serious about the new atheism, if you, if you, if you want to, like me, call yourself a new atheist because you think that it is time that we uh, break the spell of, of, the, of the, the, the sanctity, the hedge around the discourse of faith, then you have to be able to give voice to why you think there aren't any gods, and which means you've got to take up the burden of, of proof, and you've got to try to model good epistemology and a proper understanding of critical thinking and skepticism. You can't go around poo-pooing things as philosophy or just logic. Oh, that's merely logic you're using on me. You know, I mean, that's that's embarrassing to, to say these things. It's counterproductive. Um, so I, I think that the way to practice conversational intolerance, uh, conversational um, intolerance uh, yeah, is to be rational about it. You can't just be yelling and shouting. You can't just be using sort of newfangled definitions that make people go, huh, what are you talking about? Just because everybody on your team is using those definitions it just it doesn't mean that it's working. Right. So there are there are forces of secularization in our society that have nothing to do with argumentation. And I think those are largely responsible for disabusing people of religiousness. I mean, I think, you know, I think the 
online atheist movement has done an awful lot of good to sort of disabuse people of religion and religiosity uh, and move things in the direction of secularism. But there are secularizing forces in our, in our culture that have nothing to do with rational arguments about God's existence that do a lot of that work, that do a lot of that heavy lifting. Um, uh, and I, we've got to be careful that we don't sort of take too much credit for um, sort of the, this, this enlightenment momentum in the, in the direction of secularization um, and people becoming less and less religious. And so much of it just has, has to do with the overreach that religious people engage in. You know, I mean, just you know, look at what happened with the Catholic Church and, you know, uh, all of these atrocities of, uh, you know, child molestation and stuff like that. I mean, that kind of thing when it comes to light is, is, is worth a hundred Richard Dawkins talking about um, uh, atheism, right? So it, 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 there's a certain sense in which you can just let your enemy destroy themselves, right? Um <laughs> But they have to have some opposition because if they have no opposition, then they will grow and spread, right? Uh, but uh, if, if, if they're guilty of enough overreach, if it's flagrant enough, right, then people will recognize it um, and they will, they will recoil at it. But you want them to have a place to go. You want them to have a rational alternative to find refuge in, right? You want them to seek refuge in a worldview that is philosophically sophisticated, rationally informed by science, embraces scientific values and rationality and skepticism and critical thinking. Um, and a, a sound epistemology in general. I mean, it's no good if they just become the unchurched, if religious people become unchurched and then just start buying crystals and believing in pyramid power. That's not a better world, right? Um, so uh, if there's any value in the online atheist movement, and the new atheism, it's, it's, the, it's the promise of moving us in a direction where people have a better epistemology pickled into them, not a worse one, not one that is designed just to win an argument in the moment, um, <clears throat> avoid them having to give an argument entirely, um, or to bloat the numbers so they can say, look how many atheists there are. <laughs> yeah. <fair. laughs> um, so... Um... I've got a number of questions um, from the audience, some that were sent in beforehand, some that are um, uh, have come through the chat. And if anyone wants to submit any questions, feel free to do so, because we're going to get to this. But are there um, any other key behaviours that you think that are demonstrated by atheists, especially online, that could do with being changed? Oop, I think you're muted. You're muted. I don't know how it's happening. I promised myself I would. I, I promised myself I wouldn't do that, and I did it. <laughs> um, darn, I couldn't get through one live stream without doing it. Um, yeah, there are probably there are probably there are probably things, um, but I can't think of them offhand. It seems to me we've covered an awful lot of ground. Yeah. So my apologies to, to disappoint that whoever wrote that question. Hopefully, we've covered enough um, examples. Uh, I think we definitely have. And no, that, that that was me just before we moved on to the audience's questions. I have um, written an article um, called Pitfalls of New Atheism that is trying to address some of these behaviours. So if people are interested in seeing what those behaviours are, that article is available on Answers in Reason. Um, but obviously it's it's it has taken the opinion of New Atheism describing these particular people rather than what we've discussed tonight and it actually just being you know vocal atheists so the questions that we've had from our audience uh let me load them up um so some of these might have 
been answered already on the stream, but I figure sure. we'll ask him again because um, what I find is quite nice is I'll do a little highlight of the questions so people can check those and it will hopefully get them enticed into watching the rest of the stream as well. So uh, Steve S uh, asks, why do the proponents of the lack belief definition of atheism seem so resistant to reason? And do you believe it is just because they are afraid of defending the uh, burden of proof on the fact that they don't believe in gods? Or is there anything else? No, I think the principal reason uh, is um, they come by it honestly. The principal reason is they've just heard it repeated endlessly all over the place. Um, you know, on YouTube channels, uh, conferences uh, organized by these, these people uh, on the Atheist Experience uh, calling show, on blogs. I mean, they just see it and hear it repeated so many times that it takes on the, the character of the truism. And they think, okay, yeah, that's that's the definition. Of, that's the definition of atheism. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, that's what the burden of proof is. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they they just take it on board, right? Because that's how we learn what words and expressions mean. We just hear them used. They hear them used, and they think that this is this is right. This is definitive. So I think most people come by it honestly, but it has the effect of making people incapable of defending atheism. You're never going to get good at defending your atheism. If you're if you are always throwing up a shield and saying I don't have to defend my atheism I don't have to defend my atheism you have to defend your theism if if that's how you always argue for your atheism is to say atheism isn't a thing it's not really a position right but you want to claim that thinking that there isn't a god or, or being skeptical about about god beliefs is rational I mean look it doesn't make sense to be skeptical uh, of everything as a default I and mean, this idea of a default position is a terrible idea. Right. Um, you know, um, you know, it's true. I'm born not believing anything, but it doesn't mean that not believing something is is a rationally default position. There's no such thing as a rational default position. <laughs> no position can be rational by default. That's a stupidity. Yeah. Right. Uh, you are either you either have a reason and it's a good one or you don't. Right. And if you don't, then it's not a rational belief. And if you do have a good reason, then then it's rational to the degree that you have good reasons for it. Um, so no belief is rational by default. So yes, you know, the, the default position is to not believe something. It's not the same thing as doubt. Yes. You need grounds for doubting something, yeah, right? I doubt that there's a teapot in orbit between Mars and Jupiter. <laughs> okay. I doubt that. I think that's probably my confidence <laughs> in that proposition is very high. I w it, would, it would be stupid of me to say, oh, I merely lack a belief in, a, in, in Russell's teapot in orbit between Mars and Jupiter. I don't merely lack a belief in it. Yes, I lack a belief in it. I lack that belief because I think that's false. And I have reasons for thinking that's false. How would a teapot have gotten up there? You know, uh, And if there were like some piece of meteoritic rock that happened to look like a teapot, it wouldn't be a teapot. It would just be a piece of meteoritic rock that in the shape of a teapot. Um, uh, so I have perfectly good, defensible, rational reasons for thinking um, or for entertaining doubts about Russell's teapot. I don't, I don't merely lack uh, a, a belief in Russell's teapot. And, if I, and the fact that I was born not believing in it doesn't make the fact that I don't believe it rational, right? Um, so in any case, not believing Russell's teapot is not a proper description of my epistemic attitude towards the proposition. I, in fact, think it's false. Or maybe you don't think it's false as I do. Maybe you think it's just dubious. Well, you need grounds for thinking it's dubious. Otherwise, you're doubting um, 
irrational. You think you can't doubt things irrationally? Talk to a conspiracy theorist. They doubt all kinds of things irrationally. <laughs> There's such a thing as rational belief and 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 rational and warranted confidence and there's a there's a, a rational uh, form of doubt and you can be irrational in your confidence and you can be irrational in your lack of confidence in in your dubiousness right? so doubts have to be warranted that's another thing that i think is not properly understood because of this concept of of a default position and that my position isn't position um and uh, only the other side has um, a, an epistemological responsibility to establish the rationality of their position, right? So um, I, I think people come by um, th um, th this view, honestly, they just heard it repeated, but it leaves them crippled. It leaves them untrained. It leaves them as basically weaklings. Um, and they get beat up in arguments an awful lot. And they come away saying, I really did good. That guy didn't marshal any good arguments. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't argue for your position. And he might have argued, given great reasons why atheism is false. And, and you, you're not going to bother arguing for atheism, right? So, I mean, I, I see it all the time. I see atheists get into arguments with, with theists where they get clobbered, right? And they don't know that they got clobbered. They, they, they come away thinking, oh, no, it's impossible. I can't have been clobbered. It's, it's impossible. I didn't have a burden of proof. <laughs> I didn't have to marshal a positive argument at all, right? So I think people come by it honestly, but I think it, it is to their detriment when they take on this belief. And I think it is a, it is a way of, of thinking about argumentation and atheism that is, uh, works to our, our disadvantage and discredits us as, as, as having the rational position. Yeah, fair. Um, I've got a couple of questions from Martin. The first one, he says, uh, what's your opinion on the one who is said to replace Hitchens, that's I am Hirsi Ali. I've not heard of this person. I don't know if you have. Oh, yeah, I am Hirsi Ali. Uh, she's uh, remarkable. I, I adore her. She's, um, so she's a Somali-born uh, woman who um, grew up as a, uh, an Islamic fundamentalist um, uh, and fled uh, her native country, moved to, is it Denmark? Holland, Someone in Holland, I think. Holland, yeah, okay, Holland, Holland. Netherlands. Um, and um, you know, you know, soon mastered the, the language, got an education, went to university, um, uh, became the equivalent of a member of parliament there, um, uh, and uh, uh, wrote a, a famous book called "Is it Infidel?" Is Infidel, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've read it, but it was a long time ago, um, and. Uh, she became one of the most hunted women in the world, it, the equivalent of Salman Rushdie. There were attempts made on her life. Uh, and uh, she uh, ultimately uh, fled Holland and moved to the United States, that was, which sort of agreed um, to help provide security for her. Um, anyway, uh, I admire her tremendously. Um, she's a very outspoken critic of, of Islam. Um, and that's another tenet of, of um of the new atheism actually is that we recognize differences between religions. We don't assume that all religions are, are just equally good or equally bad. We, we take specific claims of the religions at face value. So some religions can be worse than others, right? Um, so, so for instance, a, a, uh, a, a Muslim who is an Islamist is a lot more dangerous um, than um, say, even the most fanatical Catholic. Um, because, you know, even the most fanatical Catholic isn't going around, you know, flying planes into buildings and, you know, stuff like that, right? 
and they can be they can get up to plenty of mischief themselves, including murder. Um, but um, you know, you, you just have to look up Islamic terrorism and how many acts of Islamic terrorism there have been just since 9/11, um, and you'll be amazed. Mm-hmm. The huge number. You know, no other religion can, can equal this. So there are certain strains of Islam that are particularly pernicious and much worse than any other existing uh, religion. She is one of the Ayan Persi Ali is is uh, a uh, an apostate uh, Muslim and atheist now who is uh, unabashed in her criticism of uh, Islamism and um, uh, um, it makes her very hunted uh, as a result. So I, I admire her greatly. Um, I didn't know, I'd never heard her described as sort of the successor to um, Christopher Hitchens, though. I don't know in what respect she's sort of filling those boots, but she's certainly an outspoken critic of religion, specifically Islam, because she's very familiar with it um, and its nature. So, Yeah, I mean, perhaps it's just the fact that she is as outspoken as Hitchens was, perhaps. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I only got the question, so uh, I'll have to go back to him and ask for more context and maybe address it later. Um, he also asks, what's your opinion on the accusations launched at Sam Harris being a fascist, racist, or just simply not caring about the lives of Muslims abroad? Um, well, I don't agree with any of that. I mean, he's not, he's not a fascist. He's not a racist. Um, and in fact, uh, if you listen to his podcast, he's had a number of really fascinating discussions about racism and the problem of race relations, especially in an American context. I think it's something that, it's a question that he actually takes seriously, but he doesn't, he just doesn't like pat um, uh, politically correct answers. Um, so I think he takes sort of a, an evidence-based approach uh, to it, and it has him running afoul of sort of so-called woke people um, and politically correct um, views on the subject of race. Um, and nowadays, of course, if you run afoul of any, any of these views, you get called alt-rights, um, you know, a Nazi, uh, fascist, all of that stuff. So I think that all of those allegations about him being a fascist are just ridiculous. Um, I mean, he is as, as well, I don't know that he's as far left as me, but you know, he's pretty far left. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, there was another part of that question. I, I it was... There was, uh, was there something about anti-Muslim? Was that in there? What, yeah, what was no, it? Not, not caring about the oh, lives of yeah. Muslims abroad. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't speak to his motivations with respect to caring about Muslims. Uh, but certainly, he's one of the few people in the new atheist movement who's made it abundantly clear that nobody suffers more from the um, stupidities of believing in fundamentalist Islam than Sam Harris. I mean, he, um, than other Muslims. According to Sam Harris, it is... It is um, it is other Muslims that suffer the most. Um, it is uh, other Muslims that are going to be the most oppressed by this uh, highly intolerant religion. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that moderate forms of Islam provide luxurious cover to um, the more strident and extreme forms, just like it, um, you know, moderate milk toast Christians provide luxurious cover for the, the most strident um uh, militant, um, kill crazy, uh, you know, abortion bombing Christians, right? Uh, abortion clinic bombing uh, Christians, mm-hmm. I should say. So um, I think that no, he, he, I don't. I don't think he um, has um, Muslims in slight regard. I, I I take him at face value when he says um, that a world without Islam would be a world where the Muslims of the world are better off. Yeah, fair. Good answer. Um, Chris asks, 
what do you think atheists could do to improve the perception of atheists and atheism while still speaking out against irrational religious practices and beliefs? Um, don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, be, be polite. Uh, so be intellectually honest. Don't strawman uh, your opponent. And be intellectually charitable. Credit your opponents with uh, intelligence. Hear uh, uh, out your opponents familiarize yourself with their views, and then critique them. Um, don't critique them, find out you got it wrong, and then try to come up with another critique on the fly that doesn't work so well. So you know, try to um, familiarize yourself with your opponent's views. So basically, don't be a dick. Just practice <laughs> conversational intolerance, which isn't fighting. It's conversational. You're supposed to have a conversation. It's conversational intolerance. The idea is you're not just going to put up, you're not just going to let people make their religious claims and let them go unchallenged, you're going to go, oh, wait a minute, is that, you believe that really? Like, I mean, how would you defend that, right? Because uh, I think this, right? And then, you know, present the argument, right? So just, you know, engage in discourse, civil discourse. Um, civility is um, absolutely important. And we atheists, I think, labor under the stereotype of being angry and militant and rude, okay? That is the stereotype that we have been saddled with, Okay. Don't live up to that, that stereotype, okay? Violate that stereotype, right? Uh, break free of it and demonstrate it to be false, right? I mean, so many people in the world say, you know, I've never met an atheist or I've never talked to an atheist. Well, I've never talked to an atheist because they're not meeting new atheists who practice conversational intolerance and are willing to discuss these subjects in a civil manner. Uh, and, and those that have very often had encountered with atheists have very, very bad experiences with it you know, find them to be, you know, rude or dismissive or insulting or ridiculing. And consequently, they'll get their minds changed. They just come away with a bad opinion of atheists. So that is probably the biggest thing. Practice conversational intolerance. Don't be a dick. Don't argue with memes. Okay. Memes don't change people's minds, right? They get a giggle out of the people on your team, but that's it, right? Um, they, they don't play well to your opposition. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, if you're as an atheist, how often have you been tempted to become a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu, right? Because you saw a meme, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Don't argue by memes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, actually, yeah. I think I might know the, the answer to this next question. It's from Andy and he goes, what is uh, the worst or some of the worst arguments you hear from atheists uh, online? Um, <laughs> I think that's going to oh, tie in. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 I mean, that's a long list. We've already touched on, on yeah. a, a bunch of them that I think qualify as the worst. Um, certainly not understanding the burden of proof is, is a terrible one. Um, uh, insisting that atheism isn't a position at all and that you, you, that you don't hold it after you've you know, demonstrated in other ways that you, that you do. Uh, that's certainly one of the worst things you can do. Um, but if you're looking about specific arguments, uh, there are sort of naive forms of the argument from evil that I think are are, are pretty bad. Um, um, there's a lot of circular arguments um, that beg the question. So, for instance, here, here's a valid argument for atheism, a positive argument for atheism. Okay, all gods are supernatural beings. Naturalism is true. Philosophical naturalism is true. If philosophical naturalism is true, there are no supernatural beings. Therefore, no God exists. Okay, there you go. That's a valid argument. The question is, is naturalism true? I hear people argue that way all the time. They will say gods can't exist. Gods are impossible, right? Uh, they will insist on 
um, on um, a naturalistic metaphysic in a question-begging way. Um, it's okay to say, I think gods can't exist because I'm a philosophical naturalist. But then you have to give reasons why you're a philosophical naturalist. <laughs> and there are reasons for that. Uh, what are they? Go to YouTube and look up philosophical naturalism. Go to Wikipedia, go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, even better, and look up philosophical naturalism. And there you will find the argument. You will find the case for philosophical naturalism. And now you're not arguing in a question-begging way, in a way that assumes that your opponent's worldview is false and that your view is true. So that, that's another huge one, uh, is assuming um, philosophical uh, naturalism or materialism. Um, uh, a lot of naive scientism. Um, there's a lot of arguments from naive scientism, but I mean, we, we're going to get into the weeds if we get into the specifics, and there's a lot of them. So I hope yeah. that what we've covered so far addresses the, uh, the questioner's concerns. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, Alan G uh, has a couple of questions. He says, do you think it's actually possible for someone to truly hold a psychologically agnostic stance without some form of neurological issue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if yeah. you've ever been undecided on something, you know, should I stay or should I go? Should I go to the party or not? Should I ask her out or not? But look, you're agnostic all the time. There's lots of times where you're inconclusive, mm -hmm. where you cannot make up your mind. Should I vote Conservative or Democrat? Should I vote <laughs> Labour or Tory? There are people who agonize over things like that all the time. But why can't one of the things that you agonize and are indecisive about be whether or not a God exists? When people say that, when they imagine that this is impossible, they're, they're, I think there's two things operative. One is a failure of imagination on their part. You are, you, you are unable to imagine a, a decent reason to believe in a God. So you think they either have to, you know, believe some manifest twaddle, or uh, they ought to be an atheist, right? Um, it doesn't occur to them that maybe an argument that you think is a, is a terrible argument for God, they, they look at that argument, they go, you know, I think that's such a pretty good argument. Maybe they don't see the flaws in it, right? So if they don't see the flaws in that, in, a, in an argument for God's existence, but they don't think it's conclusive, they realize, well, you know, it seems I need a little bit more than that, right? Mm -hmm. They might have two or three arguments for God's existence, okay? Uh, the cosmological argument, where did the universe come from? Right? The teleological argument, there's so much order, harmony in, um, uh, in the universe, right? Uh, that can't just be a coincidence. That couldn't have happened, right? And these are all reasons that people actually have uh, for thinking that, that, that the universe is an artifact, that it's a creation, okay? Um, now, I know arguments against those arguments, so I can rebut those, right? I think I have defeaters for those arguments, right? And you might think you have defeaters for those arguments. But that person you're talking to might not have a defeater. So by their lights, they have a decent reason for thinking God is a possibility. But they might think that, well, it's not a slam dunk, though, right? And they might know of some arguments that, some independent arguments against the existence of a God. But they're indecisive about how good those arguments are. So what are they supposed to do? Pretend to be a theist? Pretend to be an atheist to satisfy your view that you've got to belong to one or the other? Or should they just do what they ought to do? What any rational person should do when they can't reach a rational conclusion. Don't reach a conclusion. <laughs> when you don't have the grounds for reaching a conclusion, you shouldn't reach a conclusion. You should say, I don't know. can't make up my mind. Right? It has nothing to do with knowing. It's just, I, I don't know in the sense of, I can't, I can't decide. I don't, I don't know who, who, which party I should vote for. Right? Uh, it, it might be obvious to you that you ought to vote Democrat, and it might not be obvious to them. Right? It might be obvious to you that they ought to vote Republican. It might not be obvious to them. Um, so that... Um, that's one thing that I think is going on. There is a, a simple failure of imagination. Um, 
uh, on what the how the other person views the arguments and the evidence for and against a god that leaves them in a, in a position of indecision. The other thing that I think uh, might be operative here is this: people say, observe rightly. Look, either a god exists or a god doesn't exist. Right? It can't be both, and it can't be neither. Right? It's, it's this is like even and odd. Right? Uh, a number is either even or odd. Any positive integer is either even or odd. It can't be anything else. Um, so. Uh, God exists or doesn't exist. Which is it? But the only, but the fact that there are only two ontological states, there are only two ways of this, um, um, that the, that reality can be here, doesn't mean that you have to commit to one or the other. For the reasons I just said said earlier, mm-hmm. I, I, if I can't make up my mind, so if I say, um, you know, uh, I'm thinking of a number, you know, um, or I've written down a number. Here's the number, uh, but I'm, I'm, it's, uh, you know, I've written on a piece of paper, but I'm not showing it to you. Is it even or odd? And you go, well, uh, I don't know. Well, make up your mind. It's either even or odd. Well, I, I can't make up my mind. <laughs> I can't make up my mind until I see it. Then I'll know, right? And some questions are not as easy as even and odd, yeah. right? Um, and so the fact that there are only two states of being, two ontological possibilities, does not mean that there's only two epistemic stances that you can adopt. You can adopt the epistemic or doxastic stance of believing you can, uh, that it is the case. You can adopt the opposite stance of believing it is not the case, or you can find yourself in the position of indecision or inconclusiveness. And that's not an irrational position to hold. That's the position that you ought to hold when you find yourself in, in those epistemic circumstances. Yeah, good answer. Um, I, I think where, where he was coming from was the fact that your, your brain does tend to lean one way or another. Uh, when when you are, especially if you have enough information about a topic, if you've spent a lot of time looking into, say, uh, rather than just someone going, oh, by the way, God exists, if you've actually spent lots of time looking into arguments for and arguments against. Sure. Um, his point is that they'll probably be leaning one way or another. And maybe, but right. I think what you're saying, you're almost applying a layer of epistemic agnosticism to to say, well, I'm not really convinced either way, even if I do slightly lean that far, I'm still on the fence. Yeah, I guess the expression on the fence is misleading because it makes it sound, because if you're on the fence, you imagine there's a huge area on one side of the fence, a huge area on the other side of the fence, and the fence is this little point that you've got to you know, be precariously and perilously balanced on. And I don't think that the fence is like that. I mean, it's more like a big fat wall that you can stand on. So let, let me give you an example. Supposing I have a deck of cards, Okay, and um, I deal out a card uh, face up, uh, and uh, let's say it's a red card. Okay, and and I show you beforehand that it's a fair deck. I'm not a magician. It's not a magic trick. We're just doing an experiment. Okay, and I deal out a fair card, and it's it's a red card. Okay, and I deal out another one, and it's red. Okay, and I say, okay, what did you think that the next card is black? Right, <laughs> and you'll go, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. well, don't, would you choice. agree that since don't you think it's slightly higher? And you'll go, yeah, it's slightly higher. Well, shouldn't you be committed to it being black? Well, no, because it hasn't crossed the threshold of um, to, to convince me yet. I don't find, you know, okay, so we keep going. We keep going. We keep going. We keep going, right? That red card comes out. Red card comes out. Red card comes out, right? It's, it, I just randomly shuffled. It just so happens that a lot of red cards are coming out. Maybe a black one comes out now and again, but mostly red cards. So now, look, come on. you got to admit, the next card, much more likely to be black, right? Yeah. And you'll go, yeah, it is more. Well, so is it black? Well, yeah, probably. Will you bet money on it? Well, no. I mean, there'll be, there'll be a, some point at which you would bet money on it. Yeah. But where is that point, right? And that's how it, that's how it is with belief revision and belief um, uh, choice. 
you, it, it, is, it is not the case that just because you are 51% in this direction that you're committed to that conclusion. That, that's not how commitment works, right? I don't believe something because it's 51% more likely. I believe that it's 51% more likely. That's my belief, that it's 51% more likely than not. It's not my belief that, that that's the outcome. It's just, you know. Um, so people have this idea that agnosticism has to be, you look at the information and it's exactly equal in both directions, right, on both sides for you. No, that's not agnosticism. I mean, ask yourself, you know, if I said, do you want to have, you know, you, you want to order Chinese food or um, do you want to order a pizza? Right. And you go, oh, I can't pick up my mind. Well, okay, but don't you have a preference to go? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know, maybe maybe Chinese food. It's been a long time since I've had Chinese food. Uh, okay, but is that your preference? And you go, well, not really. I mean, you decide, you know, <laughs> right? And we do that all the time, you know. Honey, do you want to have sex tonight? You know, uh, <laughs> we do that all the time. Right? People make people make up their minds uh, on uh, on things, but sometimes they can't make up their minds. And the fact that you have an inclination slightly in one direction does not mean you belong in that camp with people who are committed, who have concluded, yes, this is true. Yeah, I think this is right. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I would view agnosticism. Don't think of it as, you know, standing on the fence, as standing on a picket fence where you can only be there temporarily for a short time and then you're going to fall off one way or the other. You better make up your mind. Think of it as a big fat wall that you could drive a car on, right? Um, that's what you're standing on, right? And you've got a lot of leeway before you, one direction or the other, before you commit to jumping off on one side or the other. Uh, uh, good analogy. Really good Thanks. analogy. Um, he also asks... Um, Where's the line between new atheists, as in those who simply believe gods do not exist and are vocal about their position whilst promoting critical thinking and rationalism, and the new new atheists who are basically uh, evangelicalist and uh, in promoting atheism as the more rational position uh, and demean superstitions and supernatural explanations of experiences? Oh, I... I... Where's the where's the line? Yeah, yeah. How, how, I, I I suppose the only uh, way you I'm, can really translate that one is basically you have to judge the behavior of the person. There's a difference between someone just being vocal and someone being a dick. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, the new atheism is an attitude. It's it's what you're going to do. It's a decision or a commitment to to uh, how you are going to proceed when the discourse of faith comes up. You know, what what are you going to do? How are you going to proceed? Right. Uh, the recommendation uh, from most of these authors on um, new atheism was, you know, advanced rational arguments, historical, scientific, moral, philosophical, scientific, you know, all of that. Advanced rational arguments, right? Um, you know, don't resort to violence, don't bully people, stuff like that, right? Well, but you might be, you might suck at that, right? You might advance all kinds of arguments, but you might be ignorant on the science, you might not know much philosophy, you might misunderstand some things, um, and so you might be very bad at being a new atheist. Well, that's okay. You know, I mean, you can be a bad Christian apologist or a good Christian apologist. You can be a bad counter-apologist or a good counter-apologist. And, and it's the same thing with the new atheism. So, I mean, I don't sort of see this in terms of heroes and villains. I see it more in terms of, of people who uh, 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 know how to argue, uh, literally have some good critical thinking skills, um, and so know how to argue, and also have some good interpersonal skills um, and have enough self-control to, to not flare up and fly off the handle in people's faces, right? Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not too cruel to people who are, who are on my side and are doing a crappy job. And, and it's up to those of us who think we can do a better job to sort of 
try to ameliorate their behavior um, and, you know, coach them. And better yet than even coaching them, which can be resented, is just model the right behavior. Try to be, try to be out there yourself being a better apologist. Um, and if you're the kind of person that kind of, you know, gets hot under the collar and flares up and, <laughs> you know, you get in flame wars with people, then stay out of those arguments, right? You're not cut out for it. You are temperamentally not well suited. And it's, that's no different than telling a person, you don't know enough on this subject to be arguing about it, so you should stay out of it, right? If you, if, if you don't know the arguments that you're up against, and you don't, and so you can't know what the good objections are to it, then you really should stay out, uh, at least temporarily. And similarly, if you are temper, temperamentally ill-suited to this task, then don't do it, because you're just going to make yourself and everyone else around you miserable, and possibly uh, work in ways that are, are uh, to the disadvantage of your, of your actual agenda here. Um, so I don't see this in terms of villains. I see these in terms of skills, knowledge, and capacities that people have. You know, Matt Dillahunty, I think, is actually a really good debater. You know, uh, I don't think he wins every debate, but I mean, he's good at debating. I would suck at debating, okay? but I'm better at exposition. Um, so I do that. Right? Um, and I do pretty well in sort of one-on-one conversations. But one-on-one showdowns online and stuff like that, I've done a few of those. I don't do particularly well in those, right? Uh, because you got to think fast. You got to think about what the audience is doing, you, and you can't stop and go hmm to think. Um, you've got to share time with the other person. I, I'm very verbose, as every every listener is already aware. Um, it takes me a long time to get my ideas out there. Um, this is not conducive to to good debating. So, I mean, just play to your strength, right? And try to get better at the ones that you're not good at, but maybe don't venture into it. So. As for where there's a line, don't, I don't worry about who the good guys are and the bad guys are, who are the good new atheists and the bad uh, new atheists, right? I just, just try to model the, you know, um, this uh, as best you can um, and try to disabuse uh, people where you can politely because, you know, they know you and like you and trust you and try not to go around correcting everybody's behavior uh, on the internet because even when it's done by someone who's on your side, it might not be terribly welcome unless you are diplomatic about it ah, awesome uh, actually uh alan uh just chimed in there in the chat and said that's a great answer so uh i'm glad you managed to get a chance to um watch live alan um cheers dude thanks for the question thanks for the question um so i've got uh in fact a couple from real atheology um he says could you share some differences between uh, new atheists and contemporary atheist analytic philosophers like Mackey, Oppie, and uh, J.H. Sobel. Okay, uh, a real atheology. Okay, so if, if I'm not mistaken, this is uh, probably Ben Watkins, my friend. <laughs> I hope I'm not asking you. Um, uh, ben Watkins has a YouTube channel and channel and a podcast um, called Real Atheology. If you're not familiar with it, check out Real Atheology. If I'm assuming this is the same person, um, but it's an excellent um, channel. Um, and uh, they were kind enough to have me on as a guest on their podcast once, um, where we talked an awful lot about the definition of atheism. Sure. Um, and uh, so, all right, so could you re rename who are the, the uh, analytic philosophers? These were contemporary analytic atheist philosophers that he named. One uh, was... Mackey, Oppie. Mackey, okay. Mackie, Oppie, uh, as in Graham Oppie, and uh, J.H. Sobel. Um, Sobel I'm not familiar with. Um, I, don't think, I don't think any of those uh, figures um, would sort of qualify as participating in the new atheism. 
as far as I know. I mean, they are they are practicing the tradition of of well, just the role they're fulfilling the role of an atheist philosopher, and they've existed for you know centuries. Um, they are atheist philosophers. They 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 put forward counter apologetics. They are they argue positively um, for atheism. I don't know about Sol, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, but Mackey and Oppie do. Uh, they they argue they make a positive case for, for atheism, and they argue against the traditional apologetics put forward by by theologians uh, and religious philosophers. Uh, so they're just sort of chugging along, as I see it, doing the the same work that the old atheism always did. Um, as I, as I said at the outset, um, and throughout the new atheism is a is a is a as I see it as a shift in discursive emphasis and how we treat workaday conversations uh, out there in the world, uh, not something you do um, in the academy and in periodicals and journals, philosophy journals and, and, and such. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe uh, Mackey did do this kind of stuff. Maybe Graham Oppie does do this stuff. I mean, certainly Graham Oppie has appeared in, um, in live streams like this um, and has debated uh, theists and had, or at least had conversations with them. I've witnessed some of them. So maybe that can qualify, um, but um, I, I sort of see the new atheism as a as, um, uh, as sort of the average person doing this, and not necessarily um, engaging at some elite level of philosophy um, like these other figures you mentioned. Um, but certainly, nothing they're doing is inconsistent with the new atheism. It's just I just don't see it as as a, uh, as an outgrowth. I, I don't see it, I don't see anything that they do as uh, as hinging on the existence of the new atheism. In other words, if the new atheism had never come up, if that if that phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon, had never um, been realized, I don't know that they'd be doing anything different. Fair. Uh, he does actually clarify in the chat saying, uh, J.H. Sobel was the leading defender of atheism before Oppie uh, and authored Logic and Theism. Um, and it's, according to a lot of uh, theist philosophers, it's actually the best defense of atheism ever published. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, we I'm should, embarrassed. We should all. I'm embarrassed that, that I. Yeah. No, I'm embarrassed that I haven't read it. Um, okay. Well, as long as the titles there are, I will go look that up because uh, that will be uh, interesting reading. Because um, if this is Ben Watkins, uh, I, I respect his uh, his opinion mightily on on this kind of thing. He's an extremely well read. Uh, person on the, on these subjects is his counter apologetics are strong yeah, yeah I, follow been, him on twitter he's brilliant yeah i've been following him on twitter oh, yeah, i'm not on twitter and i've uh, yeah I, I checked out a video of his the other day i think he was on someone else's stream actually um and he seemed like a really decent guy and it has encouraged me to to look into more of his stuff as well yeah yeah ben's a really smart guy um he does his homework um and he's charitable uh in debates um uh Although I, he seems a little strident on the political subject. I've noticed that we're friends on Facebook. <laughs> He's a little strident on political subjects. Um, but uh, he shows uh, absolutely remarkable, commendable restraint uh, on the subject of uh, religion and theology and atheism. So yeah. I, I recommend his, his channel and... Uh, I, I recommend him on Twitter, except that I'm not on Twitter. I've never seen anything he's done there. So I'm not, I'm not on Twitter. Yeah. Actually, you do, you do have a profile there. It's just never been used, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. So let me say a moment, because people are always asking me to get on Twitter. And uh, I don't like Twitter. I just don't like the interface. I find it confusing, and I've never gotten used to it. Uh, and I don't like the sort of the, the flavor of discourse there. It just seems that the medium is conducive to a lot of fighting and not a lot of, mm. you know, edification. Uh, but, uh, I, 
created an account. Do you remember when there was this Rosetta mission where we were launching, where no, we, you know, the, the European Space Agency was launching um, um, a, uh, a vessel that had been launched like decades ago um, to land on a uh, uh, comet. They wanted to land on a comet. So they flew out, it was a 10-year mission to get out to a comet and land on a comet uh, and have a little orbiter, a little rolling or, uh, or orbiter that would be deployed there and take measurements as it whipped around the sun. Um, so I was I was really interested in that kind of stuff. I still am interested in it, these kind of stuff. So I created a Twitter account so that I could follow the, the, the minute by minute updates of the Rosetta mission. <laughs> so that's why I created my Twitter account. And after that, I was just, and I followed a few people, you know, um, and a few friends and a, and a few sort of uh, major figures like Sam Harris, for instance, in the um, in the great debate. Uh, but that's it. And I have never really used it. I think I tweeted hello or something. <laughs> that's it. I think I, I think I might I might be guilty of one tweet. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, it is a, a very difficult platform, I found. Um, the character restriction is one of the pains. Uh, and also you have people who want you to break down these incredibly complex concepts into 280 characters. And you're like, well, look, I've written an article on this that explains this in more detail. Why don't you have a read on it? And then if you want, we can go to DM or you can write in the comments on the site. And we'll have a proper discussion about anything that you feel I was unclear on or wrong. I'm like, no write it in in the tweet and you're like <laughs> okay <laughs> right right um he's yeah, also asked well, another two questions as well actually he's asked for some book recommendations sure. um so oh, i hate that okay <laughs> what, what does he want what does he want i hate giving up book recommendations <laughs> um, um what do you think the best books defending theism and the best theist philosophers slash defenders of theism are that's kind of hard um okay well i mean he doesn't need any recommendations from me on the subject of sort of high-end philosophy in fact i'm sure he's uh more up-to-date more current on that than than i am so let me let me let me scale this down to sort of what what most listeners would be interested in so if you really want to familiarize yourself with you know really good arguments for god go back to some classics okay uh read thomas aquinas you don't have to read the entire super multi-volume set you just look up Aquinas's five ways, or Thomas Aquinas's five proofs of God. They're excellent. Um, you will, you think you know them. You will have heard versions of them. Look up Thomas Aquinas and read Thomas Aquinas and try to come to grips with what he's arguing. Don't just poo-poo and say, "Oh, it's you know, it can't can't be right." Don't go in with the assumption that it can't be right. Try to wrestle with these arguments. Try to find out where's the which which premise is actually wrong here. Um, uh, is there an actually is there actually a problem with this inference? Does this conclusion follow or, or not? Is it valid? Does it sound? I mean, um, so I think one of the best places to go is there because those are very early arguments, but they are still some of the most often cited arguments, right? The, the, the causal argument, the cosmological argument, the, the argument from contingency, the teleological argument, right? These um, these arguments are still to this day among the most convincing arguments, right? Uh, they, 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 they are things that make, give people pause. People who are not believers hear these arguments and go, ooh, hmm, maybe there is something out there. Now, they might not come out of that, that a Christian, because none of these arguments actually uh, implies uh, a Christian God. But uh, they, they, are, they are formidable arguments in that they persuade an awful lot of people to take very seriously the question of God's existence. Right? It's, it certainly moves a lot of sort of 
uh, people who are atheists having never believed in God, right, into a position of agnosticism, right, or questioning their, their atheism very seriously. And some people, you know, fall right into theism or deism or something like that. So, I mean, uh, I think on the theistic side, I'd say Thomas Aquinas. And don't go, don't go try to read the whole book. It won't be an interest to you. But just look up Thomas Aquinas' Five Ways or Five Proofs of God um, and contend with those. Familiarize yourself with those because uh, so much is an offshoot from that. Um, and, uh, and they're valuable in their own right. Uh, and then on the atheistic side, that's kind of harder to do. Um, I'm going to have to give that a think. I'm going to pass on that because um, they're... There are books that I can think of, but they're like, you know, Michael Martin's book and stuff like that. They're, they're kind of textbooky, um, and they're, they're, they'd be a little too dry and uninteresting and long. Um, so I'm going to take a pass on that. Um, but I mean, you can just look up, you know, books for atheism or books that argue for atheism, and you'll find uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, what am I doing? If anyone's going to argue, uh, recommend a book on this subject, it's real atheology. So please, you, I'm going to, I'm going to pass the buck here. You are the person, you are the man who should try out some titles, uh, sort of at a very high level, if you like, an academic level for sort of more advanced readers. But if you could maybe throw out a book or a title or two uh, in the comments um, that are sort of pitched for people that are newer to the great debate and uh, not as well uh, versed in the subject, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Because you will have read more of them than I, you will have read more of them than I, for sure. And actually, Dave, do, do you have any recommendations on either side yourself? Uh, yeah, but I'd have to look up the book titles, to be honest. <laughs> um, Atheism, A Guide for the Perplexed is a nice, easy read. Mm. Cool. And, and what about philosophers um, themselves on both uh, the theistic and atheistic side? Uh, on the theistic side? Well, uh, let me think about that. Uh, on the atheistic side, um, I love David Hume. David Hume is fantastic. His dialogue on natural um, religion is uh, amazing. Um, so um, I absolutely love him. Um, on the theistic side, that's. I'm trying to think if, if it's someone contemporary. Um, I'll recommend, yeah, um, I'll recommend, oh, geez, I can't remember the title. Uh, but if you look it up, you'll find it immediately. Uh, William Lane Craig's book. Um, is, reasonable doubt that's the one um that is a is a uh, a book that is kind of an important book because so many people read it mm. so many christians read it so many of us in the great debate are engaged with uh christian ap- apologetics and the arguments in there i they don't convince me obviously i i <laughs> would have come away atheist if, but if they had but they're good arguments they're respectable arguments they're reasoned arguments um and they are mighty convincing to a lot of people uh, and you're going to encounter them out, out there. So if you're interested in participating in this debate, and, I, and I've been saying all along, familiarize yourself with these arguments, read William, Craig, uh, William Lane Craig's book, uh, Reasonable Faith. Um, uh, and uh, don't get hung up on the preface. He says something in the preface of the introduction that kind of a lot of people, a lot of atheist brains blow up when they read that part, but uh, you'll know what I mean when you read it. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but it, but just plow through the whole book. It's a it's a good book. It's clear. It's well written. Um, and uh, there's some bamboozling that goes on in there, um, in my view. Uh, but it is a full blooded um, defense of uh, Christian faith. Um, and he argues for uh, a creator God um, to begin with. Before he gets into some more Christian doctrines, he he argues for um, just a generic creator God. 
Um, everyone knows the Kalam cosmological argument practically. You know, most, in, most people involved in this, in this discussion encounter it fairly early on. Mm-hmm. William Lane Craig is the uh, contemporary philosopher who has sort of resurrected this old argument and made it so popular and prominent that, that, such that we all know it by name. So, yeah, William Lane Craig. Yeah, cool. Uh, he's actually yeah. come back as well. Um, so he's um, said, The Best Argument Against God by Graham Oppie, uh, The Miracle of Theism by J.L. Mackey, uh, Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing by Bede Rundle. And also, I agree with his next comment, which is just follow us on Twitter and I'll provide more information there. And thank you Perfect. so much for the shout out, Ozzy, and answering our questions. And yeah, everyone no, out there. Questions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you for joining us and asking the questions and um, providing that information as well. And I will say, anyone who is watching this, follow Real, Real Atheology on Twitter. Uh, they're brilliant. Uh, so a couple more questions. Um, we have from Josh. He's asked, how do you feel about street epistemology? I like it. Um, so when I first encountered street epistemology, uh, it was many years ago when it was sort of pretty new and starting out. And I didn't like it. And I didn't like it for a couple of reasons. I didn't like it because I don't, <laughs> I didn't like uh, Peter Bogosian who wrote the book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. I didn't like the book. I didn't like the thesis. I didn't like the way he put things. I didn't like him as a philosopher. I have to say, I admire Peter uh, Bogosian quite a bit now. I think that um, his work um, in the grievance studies program, sort of, sort of exploding a lot of woke nonsense in academia, I think is, has been invaluable. He's had to pay a, a fairly significant professional price for, for having done so. I don't think he's a great philosopher, uh, but I think he's done the world some good there with his, uh, uh, his collaborators in the, in the Grievance Studies Project. But I didn't like that book. And because I didn't like that book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, I thought I'm going to hate street epistemology. And uh, when I started seeing street epistemology videos, I did see it as a kind of um, manipulation. It did seem a little bit manipulative. It, it did seem like people were just being nice to people on the street in order to try to turn them into atheists. Um, but I think street epistemology, uh, sort of under the, the leadership, uh, I mean, I guess we should call him the leader, the leadership of uh, Anthony Magnavosco. Sorry, I think for mangling the name there. Anthony Magnavosco. Um, he's put out a ton of video and, and content, and he's gotten a lot of people uh, involved in street epistemology, uh, which is just the practice of going out and asking people questions about some important consequential belief that they have, and then just interrogating, asking them polite questions with a view to getting them to think, right? To try to raise some doubts, um, uh, asking them, how did you get to this belief? How do you justify this belief? Basically, it, it's as if he's trying to sort of teach basic epistemology. I'm just going to go out there and get people thinking about how did I get this belief? How do I justify belief? With a, with a view to sort of getting that to sort of infect their brains, parasitize their brains so that it, it is, that it, it, they don't just do it for this particular question, but that it, it spreads into their thinking generally. I think that's a good project, actually. Uh, I think it takes a remarkable amount of self-control uh, to do. And they, these people who do it have gotten a lot better at it. And Anthony, if you watch his, um, his videos, if you go to the Street Epistemology, uh, channels, uh, and if you look up Anthony Magnabosco, you'll find his channel in particular. Uh, you'll see him doing this, and they don't just ask people about God; they'll ask people about you know anything, veganism, some political thing, you know. Uh, but he just gets people. Usually, it's just people walking on the street on a college campus on a on a hiking trail, and they just say, "Hey, do you have a few minutes to talk 
I just, you know, worked on this project. I'm asking people this. And he records the conversation. You see both sides. You see him and the other person from multiple camera angles. And then he uploads the, the whole conversation. Um, and it's interesting. You get to see people in the, in the act of thinking and trying to defend things that they deeply believe, but they have perhaps never thought about um, very deeply, although they believe them deeply. Mm. Um, so I like street epistemology. I think it's a good thing. I didn't like it at first. I have to say, I, I felt very cynical about it. Um, and I think it, it, it has moved away from the kind of, um, um, narrow intention that it, it originally, uh, had when it was supposed to be, um, as a, uh, as part of a project of a manual for creating atheists. Mm. Um, but I think the, the view that they have is, is now this it's, it's and we're not going to try to convert people into atheists, what we're going to try to do is infect them with a better epistemology and people will move away from irrationality and superstition and irration and, and religiosity, and they'll move in the direction of atheism. In other words, you get atheism as a byproduct of just giving people a better epistemology. Uh, and I think that's the way to go. Um, I think that's, I think, I mean, I've never thought of myself as a proponent of atheism or part of the atheism movement. I've been described that way, but I, I don't see myself that way. I see myself more as someone who's interested who enjoys philosophy and wants to sort of propagate certain philosophical notions, improve people's understanding of philosophy, help improve their epistemology in particular. And I think that will nudge people in that same general direction. So to that end, I see street epistemology and what, what I have uh, done on YouTube over the years as sort of working in concert doing the same kind of project. Mm. Uh, so uh, I like street epistemology, although I didn't at first. Yeah, fair. Good answer. Um, we've got our last couple of questions then. Um, uh, if anyone's got any get, uh, more, get them in, get them into the chat. Um, uh, Adam asks, why do you think Matt Dillahunty keeps using Lactheism? Um, I'm hoping to have a conversation with him about that uh, fairly soon. We had, we had uh, said that we were going to uh, have a conversation about that some weeks ago. And then uh, the day of, he was feeling very unwell. We had to postpone it. And, Matt has a very, very busy schedule. Mm -hmm. I mean, even now, you know, lockdown with COVID, he's still scheduled and overscheduled to do all kinds of things. So we had uh, agreed to have a conversation. And one of the things we we're going to talk about was, was, was that. So I'm actually interested in uh, knowing why he's um, so led to it. I mean, I have uh, uh, my own views about why, why it is. I mean, I think all the, all the political reasons, you know, you want to increase the numbers and stuff like that. I think there is some misunderstanding of burden proof on his part. Uh, but 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 I think he has revised those views, and I think he's he's upped his game considerably. And now um, I think there's I see some tension uh, in him on this question. Uh, I think um, though on his Colin show it makes perfect sense. His Colin show is kind of like street epistemology. Uh, that is, in, with street epistemology, you walk up to a person and, and we say, "Tell me a belief that you believe, you know, very very profoundly, uh, something consequential, and I just want to ask you questions about it." Okay. Uh, in such a situation, you are asking a person about their views. You're not talking about your views. Right? And on the atheist experience, um, that is a call-in show where that's what people are supposed to do. They're supposed to call in and he asks them about their views. Um, and um, I think it makes perfect sense to say there, look, we're going to bracket what I think of God. Um, and the, the, the burden is on you because we're, 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 um, interrogating your views. So I think that makes sense. What I think happens, though, is all too often um, uh, Matt injects his own views uh, or his guests 
host or co-host um, uh, injects um, their own positive claims on the matter. Um, and then they take on a burden of proof as soon as they do that, a discursive burden of proof as soon as they do that. And then you, the caller wants to know, well, why do you think that? Or why, why, why do you think that's a good objection? Or why do you think this is irrational? And then that, that has to explain why and, and stuff like that. Um, so I think um, the, the format of the show is such that it, um, it, it, it makes a certain practical sense to say, listen, we're going to bracket our views. We're here to interrogate your views. And I think that's okay. Uh, where I think it's a mistake is when Matt uh, does a debate on God's existence, for instance, um, and everyone knows that he's an atheist who thinks there actually is no, no God. For instance, they're debating the existence of the Christian God, let's say, um, and he thinks it didn't happen, right? Or he thinks the resurrection didn't happen. Let's say they're arguing about the resurrection. Well, if he, right, everyone knows that Matt isn't agnostic about whether the resurrection happened. Clearly, Matt thinks that the resurrection didn't happen. So he should present arguments against the resurrection he shouldn't just criticize the other guy's arguments mm -hmm. right he should make the case for it and similarly when they're arguing about god's existence i think he should be making the case for god's uh, non-existence um so uh, i i think for the colin show it, it makes sense uh but then you have to be careful how you proceed otherwise you end up taking on a burden that you want to, you don't want to take on for the purposes of that discussion and i think he makes a mistake when um he ends up playing hide the ball with um, uh, his position <clears throat> by uh, adopting the lactheism definition. I think that's a mistake. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think it convinces any theists. Um, I think it gives, I think he gives good arguments against his opponents uh, most of the time. And so that I think works on, on the audience. They go, oh, hmm, yeah, well, that, that was a good rebuttal that never got properly addressed or something like that. Mm -hmm. But no one's going to come away thinking, mm, this Matt Delante guy, I think he's right about there being no, no, no God, no Jesus, no resurrection. And that's because he doesn't make the case for that. And I mean, if anybody could make that case well, it would be him. I mean, if there's any sort of person that isn't a historian, that isn't a philosopher or anything like that, just sort of a lay person, lay educated person who could make that case strongly, it would be him. Um, and he's got the talent for debating. I, mean, I think he could actually do a yeoman's job. Yeah, fair. Uh, actually, um, Linkus, as soon as you're going to have that conversation, if it's going to be recorded, I'd be very interested to to find that. Um, I don't know if it's going to be recorded or not. Um, uh, I know he wants to sort of have me on. Um, I've been on his um, his atheist, uh, atheist debates uh, podcast a couple of times, and I know he he has a new show now. And he's said, "No, oh, we should get you on." So that might happen. Uh, so it might get recorded, but it might not. I, I had I had in mind that it was just going to be a con casual conversation between two friends mm -hmm. saying, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I, you know, I object here, you object there. And I thought we were just going to have a friendly conversation, but it might be something that he'd want to record. And I wouldn't have any objection if he wanted to record. Uh, well, I hope it is, but uh, understandable if it isn't. Um, Adam also asks, um, have you s seen Steve McRae's WASP argument? Yes, uh, uh, and I'm struggling to remember what it stands for. So that is the uh, weak atheist special pleading. So. Special pleading, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yes, and I agree with it. It is, it is, it, it seems to me valid and sound. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I can't, I cannot recall the argument now, so I can't, I can't lay it out. But it seems to me a perfectly uh, valid and sound argument. Um, uh, yeah, I think. Um... I mean, Dave, you actually had a, a similar one. Um, before I even knew um, Steve's argument, Dave presented um, a, a similar one. It was essentially, if 
you can define an atheist by what they lack belief in, then you have to also define a the or allow a theist to be defined by what they lack belief in, and they lack belief in God not existing. Um, but then you've got the people who say, well, I don't hold a positive belief. I only lack belief. Therefore, they're lacking belief both ways. And therefore, that would make them either a theistic atheist or an atheistic theist, which is a contradiction. Or yep. you're guilty of special pleading saying, no, that only applies to atheists. It doesn't apply to, to theists. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I, I, I've advanced that same argument years and years ago. Uh, I said, look, you can define an atheist as someone who lacks a belief in the existence of God. You can define uh, a theist as someone who lacks a belief in the non-existence of a God, right? I mean, every, every theist lacks belief in the non-existence of God, right? Because yep. if that weren't true, they wouldn't be a theist. So yes, every, <laughs> every theist lacks belief in the non-existence of God. There you go. I've just defined theism <laughs> negatively. Uh, see, it's not a positive claim. It's a negative claim. Ta-da! Right? Now, how impressed are you? Does that, doesn't that just sound like a dumb semantic trick? Yes, it's a dumb semantic trick. Well, it's a dumb semantic trick when an atheist defines atheism negatively as well. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and so, I mean, if the atheist can do that, then by parity of reasoning, just consistency of reasoning, the theist can do it, mm-hmm. right? Neither, neither one is intrinsically a positive or negative claim, right? Uh, because any positive claim can be simply restated negatively. And in a negative um, claim can be restated in a positive form. So this idea about there are positive claims and negative claims and positive assertions of a burden, but negatives, you know, no, that's not true. <laughs> All claims have a burden of justification, mm. right? If I say... This isn't a cup in my hand. I've got some explaining to do. Okay. Um, right? Uh, the fact that I said this isn't a cup in my hand, that's not a, you know, that's a negative claim, but it's a claim. It's claims that have. Right? It's, it's as soon as anything has a truth value, as soon as anything can be true or false, you incur a burden of justification right then and there. In fact, it doesn't even have to be true or false. I mean, if you say I'm undecided, you have a burden of justification. You have to explain why it's rational to be on the fence. Agnostics don't get away with anything, nice. right? Um, <clears throat> they have to justify and explain why it's rational to be undecided, right? Because presumably they think it's rational to be undecided, and they think I'm making a mistake, right? And they think the theist is making a mistake. Um, so, and there are different kinds of agnostics, and we don't really need to get into all that right now. But yeah, so it, it doesn't matter if you if you if you um, characterize your um, the fact that you think that there isn't a God in negative terms. It doesn't doesn't change anything. <clears throat> and the fact that you have never in your life been willing to say there is no God. Just ask yourself: Is that what you think is true, though? Do you actually think that there's no God? <laughs> right? Do you think it's don't don't you like me? Just think it's just BS. It's all made up. <laughs> yes. Is that what you think? Welcome to atheism, right? So now go ahead and try to think of the reasons what, uh, why you think that. Presumably you have some. Articulate and share them with people. And there you go. You're discharging your burden of justification. And you cannot be charged with burden shifting and you know playing hide the ball and redefining atheism. You don't need to do any of that. You know, this is all game playing. There's no need to do it. Um, and uh, I think all of this started was sort of well-motivated by a desire to get theists to, to take up their burden when they would sh- when they would shirk it and shove it onto atheists and say well you're the ones with the you know you're the outliers who don't believe there's a god you need to you know 
look, it, it was necessary to get them to, to own up to their burden, right? But th- that's not a reason for us to share our burden of justification. Yeah, that's fair enough. More than fair enough. Um, right, so that's it for the questions from the audience. Dave, did you have any for Ozzy tonight? Uh, no, no. Um, I was going to ask about um, whether the echo chambers of Facebook sort of create a, a self-assessment, a self-fulfilling idea about yeah. what the atheists think about themselves. But that that's a long conversation. Yeah, and we've well, kept I, it for a long time. Yeah. Well, I, I, let me just say um, I have belonged to a lot of atheist groups on Facebook. Uh, I, I seldom participate in these groups, but I. I belong to them so that I can observe them. I don't like what I see there. There's an awful lot of patting each other on the back, a lot of self-congratulation that goes on there, and a lot of reinforcement of stupid ideas. Uh, and when someone like me comes along and says, "Well, I know, hang on, I think this is a mistake," or you know, this is this, this is a dumb meme, you know, that makes us look stupid, you know, I don't believe in evolution. I accept evolution is true, or something like that, right? But I, you get dogpiled. People just jump on you and stuff like that. And <clears throat> and the uh, you can sort of go down, you know, fighting there uh, endlessly. But the problem with that is that there's, you know, 80 of them and one of you, and they all reinforce um, each other in thinking that you're the idiot, right? Um, so I think that, that, that Facebook, um, maybe Twitter is the same way, but I think that Facebook groups um, really create intellectual silos that run contrary to the goal of critical thinking and open-mindedness and intellectual charity. They really, they they are just little electronic churches where people <laughs> go in and recite their their, their, their atheistic catechism. Right? Uh, so I don't participate in them, um, or extremely rarely, but I, I like to be, you know, a member of these groups and look in and go, oh my goodness, you know, I like to sort of, you know, stick my finger in the wind and see which way the wind is blowing. Um, so that, that's a good way to do it. But yeah, they, they, these are like little churches where people just reinforce the same idea over and over and over and over again. Um, and I think that to a certain degree, when you're a newly minted atheist, it can be useful to be in the company of, of, of people who will uh, encourage you that it's okay to shed your faith and stuff like that. But you can take on a lot of bad, stupid ideas and a lot of bad epistemology and a lot of bad rhetorical strategies and and a really uh, a ugly view of theists. I mean, there is a lot of theist bashing that goes on in these groups. You know, and it's not an exaggeration to say that some of these groups are hate groups. Uh, now, I don't believe in banning hate speech or anything like that, so I never report anybody for the things that they say in these things. I think people are allowed to uh, express these things, and I think people need to be allowed to express these things. Um, and we certainly want to know what people believe. But... There are some people who just uh, out and out hate the religious, um, and you know it just becomes another form of bigotry. And I don't think that secular or atheistic bigotry is any better than religious bigotry. Yeah, yeah, I basically feel what I hence why I don't really use. Oh, Dave, you're cutting out. Is your uh... yeah, you, you cut out a little bit there. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I don't use them. I have a kind of similar opinion to that. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Even in, in groups that we either run ourselves or moderate on, you notice it going on and you, you try so hard to, to keep everything open and reasonable and respectful, but it still quite often ends up that way. There's still a bit of dogpiling going on. Uh, it's easier when you're running the, the, the group yourself to say, stop that or you're out. <laughs> 
but I, you also don't necessarily want to censor people. You want to try and bring people round to, to reason. Um, as Alan has just said in the chat, he says, you know, when, when he hears someone like you say that he's made a mistake, he stops and listens intently and, and listens intently and would encourage anyone else to do the same. And, and I think that goes back to our earlier conversation that we had about, you know, when trying to change your mind, res respect matters. Now, there's going to be people out there that don't know who you are or your experience with this stuff. So they're going to have instantly do the dogpiling thing we speak of. Um, but this is this is why other atheists out there, if they're getting involved in these conversations with theists, that they shouldn't just be ridiculing. Uh, you know, they're either ridiculing because they think it's funny and they're trying to get the pats on the back, which isn't really good. It's basically bullying or, um, you know, they're, they're trying to change a mind, but they're not going about it the right way. And it can be very, very difficult to get the right formula to do this sort of thing. And I think everybody is a bit different. But what we need to do is try and be respectful, charitable and try and engage people on that level, find out exactly what they believe and why they believe it first, and then start your probing questions, and then maybe, maybe start critiquing it if you find that there's, you know, clear gaping holes. Try and draw their mind to, to other things. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'll right. get me in trouble with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> So I think, I think we've uh, kept you and our audience long enough tonight. I must admit, I've had a, a really good time. Thank you so much for um, joining us. Um, yeah, thank you, Ozzy. Yeah, the pleasure nice was all mine. Thank you very much. Side to new atheism as well. Like, uh, because there is so much negativity to the position currently online, it is used to describe the, the, the dogmatic fundamentalist um, anti-philosophy type atheists but actually all it is really supposed to describe is atheists that are just a bit more vocal the problem is they're a bit vocal in the wrong way and perhaps that's something that hopefully people can take away from tonight's stream and reassess the way they do it Ozzy is there anything you'd like to share before we sign off for the night um no, not really. I mean, if anyone's um, looking for my content, um, uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's not monetized. I don't make any money off it or anything like that. There's no merchandise or anything like that. It's Ozymandias Ramsey II. Uh, and I have a Facebook page um, uh, that goes by the same name uh, where I occasionally post stuff. I'm not particularly active on social media. Um, but um, if anyone's interested in uh, more of my stuff, you can find it there. Awesome. Yeah, Thank I agree very much. Thank you very much. Uh, this was really, this is a lot of fun. The time flew. I, I, I just noticed it's, it. I thought it was two hours. It's been three hours. <laughs> yeah, that's, why, that's why I felt bad asking my question because I realized just how long we had you. Yeah, uh, but anyway, thank you. And, and um, thank you to your audience. If, if anybody has listened for three hours, I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's quite a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everybody that's been listening and submitting your questions. And uh, anybody who's catching this on the rerun, um, yeah. And obviously, big, big, big thanks to you for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a wrap for the night. Uh, so you've been listening to the sci-fi broadcast from the folks that brought you fresh air. I'm Joe. And I'm not Joe. <laughs> and you're agnostically Joe. <laughs> Good night, all. Good night, all. Take care, Rosie. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Good night. <laughs>